1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery.
0: What is up, Gypsy Gang? And we are back for another episode of the Gypsy Tales podcast. And this is one that has been basically on my podcast bucket list since day one always knew that it would happen uh it was just i feel like the case with these sometimes like you get a guy like this and i just genuinely feel a responsibility to do a good job when it comes to doing a podcast like this he's a guy that so many people have looked up to he's a guy that has paved the way for you know a generation of writers to come after him uh he's this benchmark of staying young staying fit staying healthy and he's almost this yardstick of what is achievable uh into your years post your career or into your older ages just to what's possible and just that you can keep going and man so 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 stoked to bring you all a podcast with mr motocross himself Stephen Gaul. Gawley's just done absolutely everything when it comes to the motorsports industry in Australia. He was Mr. Motocross and dominated throughout the seventies the and eighties. Uh, he then had a sprint car career, then went to America to train guys like James Stewart and Michael Byrne. Then he was a stunt coordinator for Mad Max. He's just, he's a guy that's just done it all and through it all has just remained the nicest and most humble gentleman that you could hope to come across. And I just really hope that this podcast did did him justice. I uh, Just got to give a shout out to all of our sponsors as per usual, because a show like ours does not happen uh, without the help of some very, very, very cool people first of all just got to thank the guys at mx store you can head to mxstore.com.au uh i've been harping on about it but we've got our mid 2k project that is well and truly in full swing you can actually just go and follow that hashtag on instagram uh, and you'll see a bunch of lords doing some pretty incredible work and they've set the bar pretty high for myself and sammy but that's where we're so lucky that we've got the guys at mx store in our corner Uh, and i know that a bunch of the guys that have been doing these mid 2k builds have been going through mx store as well so massive thank you to those guys Uh, also this is a bit of a happy birthday actually not just a uh, bit of a sponsor shout out but boost mobile turns 20 Uh, insane to think about what peter adderton did uh, as a young guy from australia and really just it just took the telecommunications world by storm and still to this day uh boost is absolutely killing it as far as australia goes for me it's a, it's just a no brainer uh they're on the full telstra 4g network they've got some of the best prepaid plans i've ever seen and that that includes living in Uh, while I was living in the U.S. And everything, it's such a competitive market over there. Uh, And I think that what the guys at Boost here in Australia do is just as good as anything on the world stage. So um, they've supported not only us, but so many people uh, in the action sports community, the community that we're all so lucky to be a part of. So massive, massive thank you to the guys at Boost. Uh, If you want to get on the Boost program like myself, like Corey Creed, a bunch of other legends, uh, you can head to boost.com. Uh also got to give a shout out to the guys at Rival Inc. Uh it's like you don't even have to say much when it comes to these guys. Just literally head to rivalinkdesigncode.com and just have a have a little sticky beak at the work that these guys put out. Um They are industry leading when it comes to the graphic world. Everybody uh, jumps on and sort of does what these guys are doing. They really do set the benchmark and we're so lucky to be a part of that Rival Inc. family. And I cannot wait to see the kit that uh, will be going on my 350 and the uh, mid 2K build. Just that, yeah, these guys, these guys just kill it. So Rival Inc. Design Co., uh, .com and you can use the code gypsy tails or gypsy gang at checkout for 15% off. Also got to give a shout out to Sammy the Glove Lord himself 10 years of Fist as well this year. Uh, definitely not an overnight success, that is for sure. Uh, but fisthandwear.com is the uh, is the website where you can go and pump in the promo code fuckjase for 20% off. Uh, also, you can head to dixonquality.com.au, get yourself one of the dopest flannos in the game. Uh, and also just a shout out to the guys at Maxis Tyres and Motorex. Uh, got some Maxis giveaway stuff coming very, very soon. And hopefully I will be putting some Maxis Tyres of my own in the dirt uh, six weeks since I crashed and I'm getting pretty 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 antsy to get back on the bike. Uh, Also, a quick shout out to the guys at Anarchy Trailers as well. You can hit them up on Instagram at Anarchy Trailers. Uh, They're doing some amazing work as well. So, Also, just a little quick one before we get into this. If everyone could just go to the uh, review section on iTunes uh, and just give us a cheeky five-star review. Uh, I kind of Always forget to ask, to be honest. Uh, but apparently it helps with the charts and all that good stuff. And, uh, yeah, would be cool to, uh, to have a few more people listening, always welcoming of new members of the Gypsy Gang. And uh, I'm pretty sure those reviews and stuff help. So if you want to help out your boy, just a little old Gypsy, you know, having a crack, uh, that would be much appreciated. And whew, we're on. Stephen Gall, the podcast, is about to go down in your ear holes right now. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you very much to Stephen Gall for coming in and giving us his time and some insights into a a truly fascinating story and a truly great human. We don't. I am here with Mr. Motocross, Stephen Gall. Very excited to have you in the studio. Thanks so much for coming, mate.
1: Yeah, thanks, Chase. Great to be here. I really appreciate the uh, the invitation.
0: This is for sure bucket list podcast. I've always it's one of those ones where, like, well, we've even spoken about it for a long time, but obviously just now doing it. It's one of these ones where I just always knew that we we're going to do it. I always knew that it was going to be epic, and I'm stoked that today's the day.
1: Yeah, it's pretty amazing how I've known your dad for such a long time, and. Now, you know, he's grown up sons now talking to me on the phone about this and there's been a lot happening since those days that I, I met your dad. It's crazy,
0: like, that picture, Um oh, I actually don't know if I showed you, like, you probably wouldn't have seen it. I posted this picture on uh, Instagram the other day. I'm not sure if you would even remember it. Um,
1: I think I saw this with your dad.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's got and dad And Stephen Akers. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know the one, yeah. But, man, that was like... In our house our whole life. Yeah. Like, that was just always this photo, whether it was in, like, the shed or in the, the carport or in the house, like, whenever yeah. we moved, like, that photo has just always been around and we were kids and dad would just be like, you know, this is like Stephen Gall and do this like Stephen Gall and, you know, Stephen Gall's still so fit and, and even now, like, you talk to anybody that mountain bikes, you talk to anybody that does anything still, I feel like past their 30s, you're like the... The uh, yardstick of people being like, no, i will still ride. Right. Look at Stephen Gaul. Yeah. No, I'm still going to mount. Look at Stephen Gaul. Yeah,
1: well, it's nice to think that I've motivated people in so many different ways through my life, and whether it's through motocross, supercross, mountain biking, now, older people now that look upon me to sort of go, well, he can do that. Why can't I? Which is what I do when I see people above me. Uh, for instance, the last Mad Max, the Mad Max movie that I did as motorcycle stunt coordinator, there was a guy there called Richard Newton and he was a multi Dan Brazilian black belt. Oh really? Um, He was at that stage eight years older than I. Yeah. He, he was incredibly fit, looked so good, six pack. And I went, that's "That's what I want to be at 63. And now I'm one year away from 63. So I've actually let things go a little bit because I've been a bit injured lately, but I want to get back there.
0: It's funny you say that man. Like I, uh, I've had, I'm have had i 32, so I've had all of these little kind of milestones and I always had it in my head that whatever you are at 30, like in terms of your physical uh, frame and conditioning and things like that, I was like, I just for some reason had it in my mind that like that's where you'll kind of stay from 30 to 60 yep. almost, you know. And so I was just like, I always want to prioritize my body and now I, I hit 30. And I was like, oh, so at 35, I'm going to be able to do this. Like, I want to be able to do the splits at 35, you know? So you kind of get these, you just sort of move in those, those personal goals. But, um, you've obviously like, that's just been this consistent theme throughout your life.
1: Yeah, I actually thought at 30 I was over the hill too. But then as life went on, in my high 50s, I felt like I was still in my 30s Yeah, because I looked after myself. I ate, I drank, um, you know, right, didn't drink the wrong things, didn't smoke the wrong things, didn't do the wrong things with injectables and things like that. And yeah. I've always looked after my body. And, and people go, oh, you can't keep – there's no fun. Well, I have fun in a different way. Yeah. You know, I don't like when people say, oh, you don't have any fun, Golly. Well, I do. Yeah. I have fun – showing young people what I can do in an old age. That's what gives me more buzz than anything else. And so I totally understand what you're saying, but people don't realise that when they when they do do the wrong thing through their life to a degree, it catches up with yeah. you. Yeah. And like, you know, I've hit the ground a lot over time and I was just telling you, Jase, how some of those body parts are catching up with me right now. Yeah. But the rest of it's ticking over really, really well. But, you know, you've you got to be careful when you're young. If you don't look after yourself, wow, it does catch up with you and you yeah. can't have as much fun. Yeah. You know, you see people in their 60s that – they're just like, they're ruined. Mm-hmm. And you go, well, what did you do with your life? You know, it just yeah. puzzles me, that's for sure.
0: Well, that's the thing, like dad, so you and dad are seeing the same, well, we're well, actually all of us are seeing the same doctor at the moment. Um, but dad's really started to take it more seriously now over, I'd say probably like the last two years. And David's actually really given my dad back a lot of his his just life. Like he went up to Cairns and took a motorbike, and an e-bike and my mum's e-bike and it's just becoming this thing now what he has the ability to to do these things because he's sort of give like spent a couple of years looking after his body yep, yep. but like his quality of life now just purely based on maintenance, like maintaining mm. the meat vehicle that carries you through life yep, has yep. improved his quality of life just so dramatically
1: yeah and when you could be around for another thirty years to your ninety, and these days people are living longer, got to look at your hereditary side of things to see where your family are, what they're doing, and where they're living to, and you can really judge. And I think now my mum just died at ninety three last year. Yeah,
0: right. And
1: you know I'm just like mum in a lot of ways because you can tell some of the similarities between your dad and your mum, and mm. and I know I'm probably going to go maybe another twenty to thirty years if I don't get dementia along the way through the hits in the head. And yeah, but um yeah, I'm, I want to last. I want to have fun along the way.
0: Because you're like a retirement age, but you're not, I just can't see you really retiring. And I think that that's probably like another new concept as well is I think that people, there was kind of like this old concept of uh, I'll work and then I'll have my fun from 65 onwards, whereas it seems like with you it was, no, I'll just, there is no retirement. There is no, no. out-to-pasture That's just, you keep doing what you want to do and you just do the maintenance required to, to, to keep it going. Yeah,
1: to keep it going. And you feel really disappointed for people, farmers and different people in businesses that have spent all their life, a bit like what you said about your dad on business and the family and not really looking after themselves. They get to retirement. The buy motorhome or whatever, become a grey yeah. nomad, and in six months to a year, th- they're dead. Yeah, they die because of something, and I feel so sad for those people. They haven't really enjoyed their life, and they've devoted their life. You can still devote your life to things, mm. but not entirely to other people. You got to put some something back into yourself. I think the
0: problem is people will let it slip to the point where. So for for me, for instance, I went to the gym this morning, trained super hard, and then I'll look after myself through the day with some mobility sort of stuff. I'll get home tonight. I'll stretch. I was at the gym for an hour. I'll probably spend maybe another 45 minutes on my body, and then I'll do a 10-minute meditation at night. So I've spent two hours Mm. out of the 24 that have been allotted to me on taking care of my mind and my body. Yep it's not that big of a ask right now no. for me but that i'm in a maintenance phase essentially well i'm coming back from a bit of an injury so i guess i'm in a rehab sort of phase but essentially i'm not trying to lose weight i'm not trying to there's none of the end goal sort of dramatic change in my body whereas i think that some of the things is that people get to a point where they've just got such a big hill to climb because they have let it go that they just, the days lapse and the day. It's just, whereas you need to just go, this is just what I do. There's the hours allocated. And then over time, and I think that's what my dad's seeing now is that he's just been chipping away for, you know, a couple of years, just really trying to like his knees were gone and he was having all these problems. And then now He's getting he's getting his knees back and he's he's getting more of this mobility and now it sort of feels like he's entering into that that yeah. sort of same so
1: opening up for him yeah. yeah
0: so I just think it doesn't I think when you get your head around it the right way and play that long game like you've been playing for so long mm-hmm. then the the effects are it. The, the effects are kind of obvious
1: yeah it certainly is it's just a matter of getting in there and doing it and giving yourself some time but then don't you feel sad for those people who've got to drive an hour in the morning an hour at night to go to and from work they have to work they've got to raise money mm. for their family or whatever the situation in their life may be i've got a, a my best mate who i grew up with uh, he's in that situation he works for yamaha in sydney and he goes mm. an hour and ten minutes. Either way to work, yeah, and so there's a dead hour and ten minutes in the car. Sure, I can do emails, verbally, voice text, yeah. and stuff like that, and you can cover a bit of ground. But how much time of your life has gone out from mm. just trying to maintain a family situation, which is a real shame for some people.
0: Yeah, well, that that was definitely the thing. Like when I look back on it now, like as I'm old enough to where I have to maintain a house, I have to maintain a business, I don't have a family yet. I look at the time that it requires, and then I look back at dad. I'm like, he was just busy, like mm. really, really, really busy. But and and I don't think the education was there as much as it is these days too. I I feel like maybe over the past eight to ten years, like you're an outlier in terms of how ahead of the curve mm. you are. I feel like my generation, if you look at me, my brother, guy, all of the people that I'm around, will be more like you into yep. our sixties, yep. but you're the outlier. You're yeah. so ahead of I'm ahead of the game of, a little. You're like first gen, yeah. you know Terminator Man that just yep. kept kept sort of going. But I think now that things will change quite yep. dramatically, and then you got medicine as yep. well that comes on that. I think one thing with the people that have to drive podcasts, you know, audio books, mm. like there there definitely is more ways to make that time productive these days as definitely. well. Definitely. So, all right, we're going to get into some, we're going to get into it. I would really like to know how you got into motocross. And I know that when I have a kid and I get him into motocross, I know how that looks. That'll be 2020, whatever. Mm-hmm. But when you got into bikes, what year was it and what did it look like? What did a motocross, like I know what I could show my kid and be like, look at this, this is Eli Tomat, this is Adam Cincerello. What What did it look like for you?
1: Well, it was pretty basic back in the days, and when I first started uh, at eleven years of age on a little mini bike, and it was actually Yamaha's very, very, very first mini bike called the JT One 60cc. So, in saying that, I've been on Yamahas for now 46 years and never varied away. But um, my dad had a property; we he he bred Shetland ponies in Menai, southwest of Sydney, and we had a paddock down the bottom, and then up the top. Because they were into a little bit of fun, my dad and his friend they had an oiled go kart track. Oh, so it was like so a little dirt oil. Or dirt yeah, oil. Yeah, we used yeah. to roll it and grade it. So actually, at five years of age, I was in a dirt go kart going around that track. I drove cars at nine, ten, mini, little mini miners and things. So I was already ahead of the game with speed and and coordination before I even got a motorcycle. Yeah. So then I rode the paddocks. I rode. I made my own tracks with the tractor I did all of that. I got into the St. George Motorcycle Club early and then just did it with fun because my mates did it. Yeah. Nothing, nothing special. I was on a YZ 250 at 14, one of the first MX250s, and some people may remember that same uh, bike I was on the front cover of the very first ADB magazine. Really? In 74, the very, very first one. Now we're up to 495, I think, So, uh, and I've been on five or six Covers and that's ever a since. monthly magazine. Yeah, that's a monthly magazine. So that was a long time ago, but that is brings good memories back to me. And so then one of the big things that changed my vision about racing and having fun with my mates is that I went to Oran Park once where legends of the sport at that time, Roger DeCosta, Adolph Will, Willie Bauer, um, Joel Robert were there. Yeah. And then I was on the fence watching these guys ride around smoking the Aussies and I'm on the fence clearing over there, going, I want to do this one day. As what a lot of young people do when they go to the yeah. races. Yeah. That's me. I want to do that. Went to the pits, checked out the trick factory bikes, the trick Suzuki, and everything it was there for DeCosta and and um and Robert. And so good. It was just so interesting. So that really flicked the switch for me. So from there I And what age would you have been then? You then think? I was 14, 15? Yeah. Cause then I went. And I was in the St. George Motorcycle Club, started racing in the club. Um, 16, I got into open events, immediately made an impact. Um, We won the C-grade team's dirt track championship, my first ever race. Uh, Yeah, immediately made an impact. So the years of going around, around that dirt track and playing around in the paddock on slippery grass, uh, developing my skills, certainly made an effect straight away and I'll come back to it later, but that's where we talk about skill and talent of young guys today. We'll, we'll revisit this later on. But I obviously think like we're seeing Chase Sexton at the moment jump yeah. to the top of 450 motocross. If you've got it, you're there straight away. Yeah. You haven't got to progress. You've got it. It's there. Jeff Leesk, he had it straight there, straight yeah. away. Craig Dak, Glenn Bell. I can rattle off names that that developed it and got straight there. So I did the same thing. I was straight there and near the top. Uh, I was invited to Mr. Motocross in 75, the second year that it was running. Yeah. And it was only three or four rounds at at Amaru Park. And I got invited by the promoter, Vince Tesiruro, and I rode is the he last-
0: the dude that did go the rat?
1: Yeah, Vince yeah. did go the rat. Yeah. Um, he was involved in the Stone movie back in the day. What, what movie is that? Uh, spiky, bikey sort of movie about- bikes back in the day yeah, and, right. and the, the bikies back then, not the bikies of today. Yeah. And it was a really uh, iconic movie back then. So he was involved in producing and directing and that. He started a lot of the Castrol six-hour race. He was involved in the Willoughby Club doing that. Uh, innovator. Vince yeah. was an innovator. Before yeah. his time, totally he, you know, he, he transferred motocross in Australia into a real sport. Yeah. And and that's when I went to that first round. Um, I figured straight away, I think he finished eighth or seventh that last round, immediately made an impact, got a sponsorship the next year, was riding with Grace Brothers Yamaha the next year with a factory, sort of a semi-factory yeah. team. Um, and that year in 76, I finished third, jumped the second the next year, won the next year after that. And then the next year in 79, um, I was leading by 21 points in the last round. Anthony Gunter got a factory Suzuki over, rode better than me, i got to say, but very good bike at the same time. Smoked me on the starts, couldn't get him back, lost that championship. Then I won three in a row. And then then a year after that, I was winning again. Um, And then uh, Ray Vandenberg, take nothing away from Ray, rode awesome. But the promoter Vince, although he was a good mate, made that last round double point. Uh, to make it harder for me to win again. Yeah. And I screwed up. I tried to do a big double, scone myself, give myself some concussion. Uh-huh. If I was HIA back in the day, I would have been out, but I didn't. I got back on and rode the rest of the day. And I can't imagine helmets would have been great back then. compared uh, no, to Yeah, I got nowadays. them all at home. They're not real good. <laughs> Man, that's
0: what's crazy now. Like I can even put on uh, like a decent brand helmet now, and I'm like. Mm. I don't know about this thing. Can you imagine the duck in the
1: 70s? Oh, buckets, they really were. So what got me into it was seeing that race, being motivated, enjoying the thrill of riding a motorcycle by yourself, getting out there. And that's why I like mountain biking today. You're out there doing it. You're in the trees. You're enjoying the dirt and what you're doing, achieving things. And back then it was very basic, the sport. And and when I came into it, I, I think I made a definite change to it when I started to develop.
0: Well, that's um, – so I called Glenn Jacobs the other day, and I was just like, oh, is coming on. Like, what do you remember about – because obviously you guys are, are pretty close, you know, and, and I was just – he he said, like, he came in and just changed it. He changed it from – he didn't want to say – it didn't say Bogan, but – it, a different connotation it was just like a rough knockabout kind of out the back paddock drinking beers you know mm-hmm. beers and ciggies kind of thing and then like steven gall comes in and you know like back in the day just ripped and you know good looking dude winning everything and it you know pepsi sponsorship and it it seemed like it honestly even looking back at it now when i look at that era of you know the mr motocross with the big outside industry sponsors it almost seems like your era was the era of Australian motocross like we had some cool years I I feel like maybe uh 2009 2010 to 12 was like a pretty good era in Australian motocross again yep, yep. but not the big outside industry stuff and the the vibe that you know people still talk about your era today mm. with like that was Aussie motocross
1: yeah and you really got to thank vince for for installing that into the 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 public and promoting it so well and back then <clears throat> pardon me back then i not only did i as a pro rider did i have to do the things that pros do but I had to do all these in-store promotions, the TV, the radio.
0: Yeah.
1: There's all sorts of stuff I did over time. And, and, and I could see the value in that. It was good for the sport. And I was trying to change the image of being not a bogan, not a yobbo, but the guys who had fun at the sport, had a drink that night before, turned up at a four o'clock, going to bed, turned up at seven, eyes hanging out of their head and trying to race. And that just wasn't me. And, Good or bad, my dad showed me all the wrong things of life.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: He drank, he smoked, excessively did a lot of things. And it hurt me to a degree because he didn't look after the family in some ways. And I said to myself, I'm not going to be that way. I'm going to go in another direction totally. I want to be Stephen Gall as he is, show the people what I can do. And I was really focused on being doing things right, more professionally. My mum was great. Talk clearly, Stephen. Make sure you verbalise things. Be professional. Turn up clean. Um, And that stuck with me my whole life. It really has. And I really feel my professionalism, my attitude to fitness made a big difference back then, and it drew everyone up from there. And then we started doing schools at the same time. You know, University of Motocross at the Hungry Creek way back in the day in the late 70s, and Pelly and... Anthony Gunter were there training Mark Pace, um, you know we we I I I know I'm not I'm not guessing, but I know we helped the sport because oh, technique was then more important, and we brought yeah. technique into it. And we'll come back to this later on. But technique today is still not much different from motocross to what I was teaching back then. We'll come back to you that
0: know one. you text me when you text me that last night. I started watching some YouTube stuff of of you racing. And I saw, it was maybe a photo, it wasn't a video, or maybe I paused the video, but there was just head over the bars, hips back, on the toe. I was like, he's right. It really hasn't changed. Mm. I think maybe what's changed, we we won't talk about too much now, but the bikes let you do different things. And I think from watching some of the old stuff that I was watching last night, what I gathered is that the bikes were so much more jarring on you it made it look different in terms of the way you guys had to react to the bike. Mm. Whereas nowadays it feels like the bikes work so much better. It's not forcing the same reactions and the same level of instability, but the overall like fundamental position of what is a good position on a dirt bike actually
1: is the same. Yeah. Yeah. And the ergonomics are so much better with the bikes these days. You can sit so much forward on the bike where we had to sit back on the bike. And yeah. Because he and, had like the
0: big dick yeah, in the, the seat. Yeah. The tank yep. was in the way and yep. the seat
1: was in the way. And yeah. So things have changed a lot, but really things haven't changed too much. But that that's really what made my name back then with that professionalism and the way I approached the sport. and. Then I went to America in eighty with Anthony Gunter. We we'd both been at the top of a racing in Australia for the two years prior to that. We were good mates, although people thought we were a bit enemies, but we the weren't. Right,
0: you just had that competitive rivalry. Yeah,
1: and we were great mates. And we said, "Hey, let's go. Let's go to America. Let's see what it's like over there." So we turned up in California in nineteen eighty and got it handed to us, didn't we? But yeah, my butt right. kicked
0: badly. What races
1: did you do? We rode all Southern California local tracks, Corona Night Race, uh, Saddleback, which is an iconic yeah, yeah. track back in the day. Saddleback
0: Ranch, right?
1: Saddleback, was it Saddleback yeah. Ranch? They called it Saddleback Park back in the uh, day, but okay. it was like, like a ranch that was yeah. out the back of Irvine in California. Did you do um, Carlsbad? Yep, rode Carlsbad as well. Yeah. Um that was a hard, gnarly track and that taught us a lot. But like where I thought we'd be near the front, no, we were we were battling for 10th to 15th place.
0: What what was it that was different?
1: Uh, well, the intensity, the bike development, the fitness of the riders, and and that's where I, I, I learned a bit about it. I got I befriended a guy who was a factory husky die at the time going on to Kawasaki, Goat Brecker real name, Todd Brecker, yeah. but he's become a lifelong friend. And and I finished up at a gym that he trained at. Um, And on the wall of that gym, I don't know if you noticed that in my notes, but I had no easy way yeah. written in big letters. yeah, And that's just stuck with me my whole life. There's no easy way, Stephen. If you want to do this, you got to do it well. And if I jumped forward to sprint car racing for the 10 years, did it through the 90s, I didn't do it properly. Yeah. and that's why we didn't achieve where I wanted to be. Yeah. But really, if you want to do well in anything, there's no easy way. Look at the studio in. You've set it up beautifully. There's no easy, there's no cheap way of doing anything yeah. these days. You've got to do it well. Yeah. So I learnt that in those days and I got my butt kicked, like I said, and went back to Australia and went, okay, I've learned something here. And then I really put my head down and trained hard. And the next five years I went back to America, spent between five and ten grand each time on my own money to – to get better, I classed it as my apprenticeship. Yeah, I learned every year, and then I think it was the second year. This is a great story. I went back there, went training or practicing with Goat one day, and he had Jeff Ward. Ah. and Jeff Ward was an iconic name in America. You know, won multiple championships, and we went out the back of Riverside and in this in this park, this natural area, and not a park but natural area. And they got geared up before me. They were sort of semi-geared when they got there and they roosted off and started going around. And I watched them go around. I went, okay, put my gear on, went to ride around the track. I could barely get around the track. It was that difficult. Was it a sand track? No. No, it was hard, crusty, difficult climbs, rock ledges, step-ups, and I could barely get around it. What did that tell me? I've just got no skill. Yeah. You know, and that that taught me and I learned all the way along And this is what's failed a lot today, and I'll hark on to some other riders in a second, but if you don't practice difficult conditions, technical conditions, and hone good skill, when it gets difficult, if you've only ridden easy stuff, you're you're out the back door. And this was so evident to me when I went to America in 2004 to help Michael Byrne, Mm. who was a factory Kawasaki rider, and everything in California is manicured beautifully. The practice tracks are smooth, they're lovely, the jumps have got no ruts in them. And the guys go practicing, sure, they might get a fitness on a smooth, almost like smooth as a dirt track, but do they get good skill over roughness and the harshness? So that's when I said after the second year of helping Michael, Michael, you're wasting your time in California. Get over back east where James and Ricky Carmichael come from, where it was sandy and difficult. And if you Hard track if you track some of the best guys in the world, like the GOAT, Ricky Carmichael, like James Stewart, had unbelievable skill, like Stefan Everts, like Joel Robert, like Roger DeCosta, where do they come from? Difficult areas with sand and roughness. Yeah. And it's all technical, difficult tracks. Yeah. They didn't come from pristine conditions. And that's where, you know, even even clubs in Australia get it wrong now where – Dad, because little Johnny rides as well. Johnny says, "Oh, Dad, it's too rough. I'm not going to go out there and ride." So he grades the track. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful and smooth. Sure, there's a safety aspect built into all this. I understand that but motorcycles
0: aren't safe. Like no, no, no one's. Go- I'm not buying my kid a KTM 65 to keep him safe. Yep, I'm no. buying him a KTM 65 so he can have some fun. Yeah, you know. Yep, but it's funny. I was just. Uh, Oh, who was I talking to? Um, oh, Ryder G. Francesco. He's like an AM kid in America. And uh, he won six motors at Loretta's. And we were talking about the motocross of nations um, and how Europe's smoking American nowadays. And when I was over there doing every national, you get there, they all look the same. Like American motocross, they, for the last like kind of 10 years, maybe, they just prep everything. It's mm. so deep and it's so, so wet. And then you look at – so they get the same roughness. It's a very similar type of of rough that it gets. And then you watch the GPs. Man, there's some tracks that, like, they don't grade at all. There's no – there's zero prep. And then they put water down on the shit, and you go – why are they doing so much better? And the American stuff looks so cool. You yeah. can hook into every rut and you've got, you know, the perfect long turns and you've got the big, perfect, it looks better. It's a spectacle. But I actually think that if you, in hindsight now, I think France has won the last five years in a row. They're all in Europe, those guys. They're yep. all training in the sand. The best rider in the world, Jeffrey Hurlings, comes from deep, deep, deep yep. sand. Yep. So yeah, you, you are you are right. And yep. it's crazy to think that the Americans were so ahead even in your time that you could go over there and you can consider it your apprenticeship. Even then, they were that much ahead of the game.
1: Oh yeah, they certainly were. They're way ahead. That's when they started dominating. I think they run nine or 10 motocross to nations in a row back in that era. Um, Ricky Johnson and Wardy and David Bailey, all those guys. They were just so good. And the bike development was awesome back there with full works bikes. And it really was great for me to see that. And that helped motivate me along the the way and gave me more skills and information because way back in 84, I started doing those Australian Dirt Bike Magazine columns, Rules of the Roost. I'm still doing it today. You're still doing it today. Rules
0: of the Roost. I remember that.
1: Yeah. So it's still happening and I'm, I give my love to that, and it's it's just really good to see that people still read it and then comment on it to me today. Oh, I've ridden all those all your life. It's great. And yeah. you know, I've been to a school. They've they've ridden the Rules of the Roost and learnt different techniques and things about physiology, psychology. There's so much more to racing. And, yeah. and, again, come back to it later when we talk about technique and what it takes to be a good rider. But we're chipping away at the moment on the very first aspect, is that when you start to ride, if it's too easy, you'll never develop. Yeah. It's got to be difficult. Yeah. So, and it really makes a difference too when a rider has property at home or is exposed to variety of surfaces. Then their skill is exponential; they develop much more quicker, and they become a specialist in all surfaces. So, as the as the races move around, they're fast everywhere. No that's difference.
0: like that's like Toby. Yeah, he just had property, and there were times he'd be like, "I'd just go out and just spend as much time in fifth gear as I could."
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like, Makes sense. Like, yep. It's not rocket well, no science. It
1: shows that he enjoys fifth gear now, doesn't it?
0: Oh, man, he he does like fifth gear. Oh, yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. He's a, he's a special guy, and I, I made reference to myself and him in some areas, but we'll talk about that when we get to car racing a bit later.
0: Yeah, true, yeah. So that that – well, you know what I was going to mention? It's funny. Some people you talk about your dad did all the stuff that you didn't want to do. Isn't it funny that there's a 50-50 chance there that mm-hmm. you're either going to do exactly yep. what he did, yep. or the exact opposite? There's very rarely a middle ground yep. when it comes to that kind of stuff. You're right.
1: right. You did right. Yeah, I definitely went the opposite way. Totally. Yeah.
0: yeah, and I mean, it's crazy that that then can become such like a base level fuel that can then, I guess, like put you into, then put you into a thing that you could sort of dive even harder into and then you start to develop, like you said, the fitness side of things and the psychology side of things and the physiology side of things. Mm. And it sort of comes from um like that's sort of like big initial push for people.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And but I will throw in a funny aspect here about my dad that there's one thing that he certainly passed on to me, and that was how to pass wind really well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's not test that one in here. This room is quite sealed up. But yeah, so you've got uh, the those Mister Motocross days. What was it like doing the TV and the radio? Because I've been a critical, I've been openly critical about the way that things have been promoted in Australia on a motocross front for a while, but and I would sort of have that. I'm like, where are these guys? Where are they? There's no radio. Mm. There's no TV. There's like, there's cool shit. Like I could call any news outlet today and be like, Oh, I'm sort of doing this. You'd get someone, Mm. you get a local people need this shit. It's not like news stations are constantly inundated with stuff that they've kind of, you know, like they do need it. Right. They do want local events. And so was it the case back then that, a lot of that stuff went down. Like you guys were just so heavily promoted and Vince had like a really tight kind of vision of what he wanted the sport to look like. And then he just sort of gave you guys this roadmap of, Hey, this is just what you're doing.
1: Yeah. Well, it was pretty easy to explain because he had a media outlet, a promotional company uh, that ran Mr. Motocross and other events, like there were surfing events that they ran uh-huh. and all sorts of different things, um, skateboard events, things like that. It was all around junior action, having fun, Golden Breed back in the day. Then it developed, evolved into rat racing. and But he would get us out the week before a championship round and we'd be hopping from town to town with radio, TV. Maybe there was a press day. On the bike. We do that before every round for every year of that. Yeah. And whether it was Grace Brothers or Pepsi or Toshiba or one of the big companies on our shirt, of course, we had the right cap on and the right shirt on. It was, was all happening at that time. And it was very busy. You know, you, you ask a pro guy today to go and spend a week promoting mm. the sport. I'm sure, and I hear the answer, what happened these days, but it was really good. We understood we had to do it. Yeah. That was why we got money, why we were given that position in the game. We had to do that. It was part of the game. So it was very, 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 very well done by Vince. And that went through the late 70s into the 80s, and then Vince dropped off. He had a lot of trouble with the ACU, which was MA in the past. Yeah. And then remember motorcycling went to the rural doldrums in the early 90s when bike sales went off too. And that was like there's a peak in bike sales in the early 80s. It dipped down to late 80s, went up. Uh, into the late 90s and it was really good where where the thumpin's picked yeah, up and things really yeah. went. Then Kevin Weems took over the Australian Championships and that's been going for a long time. And then bike sales dropped down again in the low 2000s, picked back up at the end of 2010. It's like a 10-year yeah. era where it fluctuated up and down. Yeah. And 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 now it's going back down a little bit more again. And, and sort of what, what happened, the media – dropped off when Vince went away. Mm. There was nothing going on. When the Thumpin' started up, that was a, a fun thing, a local thing. People come along at a ride on a grass track. It wasn't real serious. But then Kevin took it on. And Kevin had the ideology of running a great event, which I'll never take anything away from Kevin nah, Wings. No, I can't either. He was awesome for the sport. But unfortunately-
0: For the event side of it, in terms of like running an event, like I don't know that- Awesome. I don't know that I ever experienced a late moto. No. I think that the way that it was done to keep it on that track probably wasn't, wasn't the best in terms of like just yelling at people and shit. Yeah. But like in terms of like running a, an event- Extremely well-run yeah, events, yeah.
1: without a doubt, very professional setup. But unfortunately, the way he had the deal, which I don't really know intimately, but the way he dealt with the clubs is, it seemed yeah. like it was them getting advantage by the gate, where he developed into the the TV and the and the online coverage later in in the, the time. But early in time, it was more the club that got the gate, and the club. Let's face it. They've got no expertise on promoting events. They're not going to go to the radio or TV. So the sport died where back in the day with Vince, he promoted Anthony and I and Graham Smythe and and Jeff Worrell and all the boys, Jeff Leesk. He, 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 he had us like the Peter Brock to the Alan Moffat yeah. to the Norm Beachy and some of the names way back in the day where we were enemies and we were fighting one yeah. another and you promote it that way.
0: Look at the posters. Can you pull up the posters from back in the day, like the Mr. Motocross posters guy? Like even the way that – like look at this shit, man. Like if I'm a if I'm a eight-year-old kid that's pulling up to wherever that – I'm sure those posters would have been plastered everywhere. Like that takes someone to get out of a fucking van yeah. with a, a – a3 poster and some paint and do it just for hours. But if I'm a kid and I'm saying, that shit. Look at them. Like motor, motocross.
1: Awesome, isn't it? Look how cool that is, yeah. man. Well, that's one of the things that helped develop the sport. You know, the kids would see that guy, oh, Mr. Motocross, look at that. He's strong. He's out there. He's yeah. doing it. And, and, you know, Vince, Vince's um, motivation with that, Vince has been a guy that's been to Egypt 48 times till now. What? Yeah. He can speak Arabic. What a G. He is, he's been over there. He knows, he's better than some of the guides. I went with him for two years to, really? to, yeah, to, to Egypt, Cairo, and Luxor, and wow. went in, in, and it was awesome. It's the best trip ever. People need to do this. And Vince, Vince, some of the people accused him of being a guide, you know, in, in there, but he just knows it all so well. Yeah. And he got a lot of his inspiration from Egypt, from seeing. Uh, The past of the Egyptian eras and things like that. So it's really cool. It really is very, very cool. And that's where he got a lot of motivation. There's the ADB book there with me in '55. Um, That's the very first ever ADB magazine. That one right there. Wow. And uh, that's the top corner of my dad's property where burns on the outside of the go kart track. And yeah, it's a pretty cool, cool shot. And actually, I've got the possibility to buy that very bike. Do it. At the moment, yeah. So I'm, there's a guy in Sydney, that's got it, and I know where it is, and I'm probably going to buy that bike because, and I'm going to set it up with those interram alloy bars back in the day, and just yeah. just put it in the corner and go. Well, I'm not typically into that old stuff too much. I've only got two bikes in the garage, and but it'd be really cool to have that one.
0: Yeah, man, that's a piece of history right there. Isn't yeah,
1: it? yeah. So, yeah, you know, he really developed the sport, and and that's what's happening nowadays. We're not getting that. Athletic aspect of the of the cool riders—they're fighting one another. The competition. People just aren't going to the race anymore. Yeah, they're they're, they're just not bothering, you know. And but there's great action to see. Motocross—you can get round the track and see different things. In contrast to some tracks. Um, in other areas where it's really hard to get round or look at the Austrian MotoGP that was on the wheel. Look how big that was to get round it. But yeah. motocross is close. Yeah. That's another story about what happened there, but let's not go into that yeah, at yeah. the moment. That was amazing. But, um, you know, it's it's so easy to see action with motocross and get right to the fence and they're right in front of you and it's it's really meaty, gutsy action in motocross.
0: Man, I got I used to just get so frustrated with the the way that the Nationals are run because – You go to, uh, like, I'm trying to think of a a good example of a track, but you go to a track, the same track that a 60 rides, for the national, let's hire a dozer and let's push up a 150-foot jump at every single track of every single national and then put it back to a 60 track at the end of it. We need one jump and then you get the press day out there and you get these guys doing these huge jumps. Like You just need to appeal to the eight-year-old Stephen Gall that goes, dad, dad, please take me to motocross. Mm. Please take me. There is nothing. I've watched motocross my entire life. You stand at Red Bud and watch the Rocco's Leap. You just go, get out, get out. It's just so cool. Yeah, amazing. And it's to me, it was just, there's a few roadblocks there with MA and things like that. But that to me is like, let's just, what are the roadblocks? Like it's a very simple recipe. Promote the guys well, promote the events well, build some cool shit that the average casual person that isn't a fan of motocross can just go wow yeah wow you don't need to know who's winning the race to be impressed every time those dudes come past wide open flying through the air it's simple yeah and and i think that i think motocross in general in terms of the sport as a professional sport it's gotten too secular like every year it kind of caters more towards what the teams want and it and it only becomes this rivalry between teams, yep. and then you can get like, and full respect to Craig Dak, mm. but you can, you get him literally having an influence over the rules, yeah, and what formats are run it. It's like, uh, I'm very sorry, you own a team that enters my race. Mm. We're gonna race to show motocross in the best way that's possible. I'm sorry if it puts you out, or you would like a format like this, but hey, we've got to do what is in the best interest of the sport. And I think that even to – so now with this COVID thing, you're seeing teams like Serco are taking their full trucks up to sunny states and they're – it's like we probably should have been doing this the whole time, you know, because they're the guys that are going to inspire those young kids. And it's like in the regional towns in, you know, let's say Toowoomba or Coolum or whatever it is. And I just – yeah, I think – I think that the the sport just and it's probably a natural progression, but it develops and develops and then it becomes so competitive and but then it just seems like it exists in this little bubble and people forget that we only race to sell bikes to people that, you know, buy it off the yeah. kind of showroom floor and that, that's what needs to be catered for. And it just sounds like with Vince and the Mr. Motocross days, that's what it was all about. And he'd changed the rules to kind of mess with you so that you didn't win five in a row and become mm. boring for everybody. Mm. It's like it's that's for the kind of the, almost a greater good, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah, certainly. But to be fair to Gavin Earls that owns Serco and Craig Duck that's the owner of CDR, um, it's difficult because money doesn't grow on trees yeah. and they've got a field, a professional outfit, they've got to have mechanics and the more races you do, the the, the more, more money, yeah, money it costs. The the more kilometers on the truck, the more look after everything that's involved. It's not easy when you're trying to develop a prof- professional team mm. at the level that those boys are. Because let's face it, yeah, they're up there. They're riding at a very very high level, and that
0: might be the problem in a way. Is that we've we've pushed it really far yep. to where it requires so much, but it's almost like what it requires to to do that is almost counterproductive to just like the overall good of of the sport, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. To a certain degree, it definitely is counterproductive. There,
0: and there's like you, what you're saying is exactly right, but I just think there has to be – there's there's probably a middle ground and I feel like it's gone one way or the other sort of too far. Yeah. And I think what's cool through this whole period is we kind of get a, a time to do a bit of a reset and I feel like conversations about these topics might actually – help in the reset of all of this to land somewhere more Mm. in the middle because it takes more money. But if you've got Pepsi, Pepsi's got a lot of money. You know, no one's got a Pepsi sticker on their bike these days. And, you know, so like I think we've just got to think more for the future. And that's what's so cool about hearing about, you know, the 70s and 80s Mm. is that it was just such a different
1: landscape. We need another Vince. We need another Vince to come out of the woodwork. At the moment, MA are putting out expressions of interest to people to take on the motocross next year because Kevin's not with it anymore. And so hopefully we might get Mm. someone that comes out of the woodwork, but I think they're looking for clubs to do it back to a club level, but there needs to be an overall promoter. And MA, to be fair to them, they've tried, but they haven't. They might have had a media contact, but the media contacts hasn't really gone out there, hasn't really got a rider and yeah. gone to the TVs, gone to the radio and and promoted the sport. They've tried to do it online all the time, which is today's way. Yeah. And it really hasn't got that ride in front of the public enough yeah. to
0: promote the sport. Well, when you're doing the online stuff, it's easy to target people that already like bikes mm. because they're already following all of the accounts and they're sort of into it. But it's like the the what we need to get is the people that are sort of outside of it. And I think that's where Adam Bailey – and Ryan Sanderson at Ame, they've just done a brilliant job yeah. with the new Supercross stuff. The the guys land from America on Wednesday. I could like Ricky wanted to do the podcast, couldn't do it. Literally, there's no time. Wow. He lands on the Wednesday before the race, and he's doing TV, radio. It's just this nonstop, yep. constant parade, and it it is an event that I think they had like thirty six thousand people at, at Marvel last year. Yeah, and you know. That's people that uh, a lot of them would be seeing bikes in a stadium for the first time. Yeah,
1: that was way more than what they got at the World Speedway Finals there. Yeah, I know. I went to a couple of those, and that was sparsely populated. And but yeah, the Supercross was really nice there.
0: What was the crowds like back in the in the seventies and eighties through Mister Motocross?
1: There was five to ten thousand people at some of the races. I remember them being five deep at Broadford around the fence at Broadford, um, just. Yeah, know, people everywhere it was so big and they came into the pits and looking at the tent and what the riders are doing and mechanics are doing and, and it really got very, very popular back in the day and, and, you know, unfortunately the crowds have gone away now and let's face it, what we're doing right here is not helping. Mm. To have the availability of podcasts, the availability of things online, this is true. It's it's taken away that aspect of the writer to go that out. You have there. to go there. Yeah, yeah. They don't have to anymore. They can see it on YouTube afterwards and the highlights. And mm. why would you bother sitting out there with flies and and dust and maybe get rained on? You know, it's it's you can see what's happened. We've created our own problems with people mm. just getting to the sport, Yeah. but they've got to come up with more interesting aspects and bring the kids out there because there might be a kid's castle to do or just different aspects to bring the kids there these days, not, and therefore the bigger kids and the parents have a reason, more of a reason to come along and to chase the, the cool aspect of motocross. Yeah. What was the money like back then? Uh, it was pretty good. Um, you know, for instance, back in my day, uh, I don't want to divulge any figures that riders are getting these days, but back in my day, uh, in the early '80s, I, I picked up forty thousand from Yamaha to do my gig, and um, you know there was other bits and pieces from clothing and other other people. So forty thousand in the early '80s, when you transfer that to now, is not bad money. Yeah,
0: what would you think that forty grand is in the '80s to now, like in terms of living off that kind of? Ah,
1: uh, now probably. Definitely to the low 100s. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, that is good money there. Yeah, eh? yeah, And yeah. then you got prize money on top of that. And- yep,
1: yep, prize money on top of that. And and it was uh, was quite lucrative back then. And then, you know, I turned my attention when I – well, if you really want to know why I turned my attention, injury, I, I hurt the knees. I tore yeah. the ACL in 78 in a race in New Mia um, in New Caledonia. Yeah, right. What was that and, like? Oh, it was awesome going over there. It was so much fun. We had a lot of – still got great mates from over there and good friends, and that was something that Anthony Gunter and Pelligron Quest and others did back in the days in the off-season for motocross. Yeah. I uh, raced in Fiji back then in New Zealand, of course. But uh, in 86, testing for the Mr. Motocross round in 86, um, only um, a week and a half out at Tony Hatton's place up at Oakdale, I tore the right ACL just b- before the start. And that's when Jeff Leesk was, was right into the flow of things. He'd won in an 84 and 85, just gone to America. Craig Dack was really strong. Glenn Bell was really strong. David Armstrong was really strong at that time. And I lost my mojo to agree because I tore the knee up. I couldn't ride that's properly. That's got to be
0: hard in, uh, it, in it, the 70s to do an
1: ACL. Yeah, well, I, I, I learned... I learned yeah you know, a c l back then, but there was no knee braces back then mm. and then eighty six I learned that Ray Vanderberg got the first c t i custom carbon fiber knee brace from America, so I went to America straight away. they helped me out But that started my love and my beginning with c t i that I still sell today mm. you know I started because they gave me some love and gave me some braces that I went to the eighty seven series with um I then started selling the braces measuring for free for people to, on how to use those braces then that led me into a business in 88 89 where I started being the CDI distributor for Australia but um you know that was my demise from the sport through fitness not being able to keep it and let me just go back a couple of years because an interesting aspect there that I hope that young people understand is that I might have been really fit and really motivated. I ate well, I drank well, well, I thought I did back then compared to other people. But what I didn't do very well is didn't really acknowledge the technical aspect of the motorcycle as well. Mm. And this is where a young Jeff Fleece, a freckle phrase Jeff Fleece, came along. And then the first year at Team Honda, after being with me at Team Toshiba the year before, he got a mechanic called Gary Ben, who'd yeah, just yeah, come yeah. back from Europe. And now Gary Ben, of course, is the technical boss of CDR Yamaha, and that expertise that Gary brought back from Europe—he went over there with um, Mike Landman in '78, '79—and really? became a factory mechanic wow. and, and came back and then helped Jeff Leisk for those two years, and that allowed Jeff to understand the bike better. Jeff's ability to understand the bike. To tra- to to tune the bike, which the bike worked better than my bike, mm. and. I got disillusioned too that I couldn't get my bike work because I didn't understand. I didn't try to understand the bike as well. So what did you not know? I didn't understand the suspension as well. And sure, I could turn the throttle on the motor, but maybe the delivery of the bike wasn't as smooth as what it could have been. Maybe we're trying for more up, up, upper power than lower power. Yes, I had a factory bike back in 81, a full factory Yamaha bike that had a four-speed power valve motor that was awesome, but, you know, it-, it My knowledge of the bike back then I had Warren Wooling, who was a legendary road race guy who died from cancer, unfortunately. And and Warren was a a legend mechanic and and I dominated through those years too. And I'm not taking anything away from my mechanics, but they weren't up to speed like Gary was. Mm. And it was really good to see how that helped evolve the sport too. And that smartness with developing the bike came into the the game. And my demise went out through a number of reasons, through injury and not understanding the bike. But Ah, that's the way it goes, you know. I definitely wasn't too old for it because, you know, I still was. Yeah, I was say, what age were you when you? Oh, 31, 32, That I went out, and you normally say back then that that's that's
0: your athletic prime,
1: really. That, that's, and I could have been still doing it, yeah. But because of injury, because of the bike, I lost my mojo. Degree, I went out from the game, and and but I look back with regrets that I didn't keep going. with regrets that I didn't look after the knee as well as I could. But I did the best I could at that era. You know, so
0: what 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 does an ACL look like in seventy four? An injury like your road to recovery, like so. Right now, if someone says, if you get if you do an ACL now, what are you looking at? Four to six months if you do everything right.
1: Minimally four, maximally six to eight months, depending yep. on the way the rehab goes. Back uh, then, what was it? Uh, well, back then it was a similar time, but back then we didn't know that you could ride without an ACL or. What ruined Anthony Gutter's career? The ACL surgery was a big cut right up through the middle. The kneecap came out of place. The knee was bent. It was so intrusive into the yeah. body, and the rehab was much longer. That's what ruined Anthony's career. His knee surgery. You know, I still got a photo at home. He was laying beside the track, grabbing his knee from from a crash. Um, but I decided not to get the knee fixed in '78, so I really didn't know what I did. Uh-huh. I didn't know what I did. So I just there's kept, no
0: MRIs and stuff no, back then.
1: No, I just kept doing it. And fortunately, I was one that didn't get too much laxed in the knee because I didn't have an ACL. Uh-huh. And when I did it in 86, again, I pushed on, didn't get the knee fixed because I didn't really know what was wrong, no MRIs, kept going with it, decided not to do what Anthony did and get that bodgy operation yeah. done, the antiquated operation done that they do nowadays through keyhole surgery, which is way, way better. But back then, you you can see some some of the pictures, you know, of, of what can be done these days. And there's the LARS ACL rejuvenation, the there's,
0: cadaver ACL, yeah, yeah, the
1: cadaver ones. But the LARS is something that deteriorates inside the joint capsule. And people who want a short term fix might go for LARS these days, but they know
0: that they're gonna that, have to do it again. That I
1: have to do it again. It actually deteriorates the joint capsule over time. Yeah, right. so it's not a good thing over time, but it's a quick fix that some basketball, American football yeah, players just get just to get just back, to get out, on the back out on the field. But, you know, there's been a, a lot of time that I've spent talking to people. You know, uh, uh, Robbie Ma- uh, Marshall mm. just spoke, broke his ACL at, at uh, Gympie oh, did he? two weeks ago. Oh. Now, I'll be honest with everyone here listening to this, that he was wearing one of my CDI knee braces. And I'll tell you other stories about people, but I say to everyone – You never totally protect it. No, no. The the same comparison to a helmet. Yeah. You can put the best helmet that costs over $1,000 on your head. You only need to hit your head into the ground the right way, the wrong way, and you're going to hurt your brain. Yeah. And the, the, the knee brace is the same thing, that you can go out and buy the cheapest knee brace and think that's a knee brace. It's going to support you. But there's a big difference in percentage of support between the El Cheapos to the top of the line, top of the line, custom-made CDIs that we measure accurately, we fit accurately, we recheck people's, you yeah. know, and I, I know that back in the day, um, top riders that I've checked the morning before and they hurt an ACL that day. Mm. I know I couldn't have done any better but it's the way that the leg goes into the ground it's a twisting motion
0: yeah well your shin and your femur are not supposed to twist no like there's a little bit of internal and external rotation but it shouldn't be like the joint itself is actually not designed for any rotation essentially
1: no no. and when you stick your foot into the ground soft dirt a rut yeah momentum the bike for going forward the weight of the bike with you momentum You can't stop it sometimes. Mm. And it tears up an ACL and people go, oh, is it worth wearing a a knee brace? Well, there's very few people out there, like a Kevin Windham, for instance, that Mm. didn't wear knee bracing. But a lot of it's down. Shane King's another one. But Shane King now sells Alpine Star Braces hand over fist over there because he knows he was very lucky. Mm. Sometimes it's the anatomy that helps. Sometimes it's the technique. And I will always say to riders that the technique makes a huge difference holding your foot high, pointing your toe in corners, yeah. getting yourself sitting down later. Don't drag your foot. Um, don't reach for the ground. Sit on top of the bike. Work with the bike. A technique makes a big difference. You're yeah. not hurting ACLs. But – you're never totally protected.
0: No, one hundred percent. Like, and how many people had neck injuries in Liette braces? And Fonseca, when he broke his neck, he was in a neck brace. Like, yep. there's a bunch of people. Where, like I said, you ain't buying your kid a sixty-five for him to be safe. No. If you're doing that, tell him to be a chess grandmaster. because yep. yep. they don't do ACLs. They don't get concussions. They don't have time off from injury. Yeah. It's just the game that yeah. you play, you know, like my, I'm six weeks out from my last crash and I ruined myself that, that crash I could have done. It went like as bad as that particular crash could have gone. I could have done that same crash and kept riding all day yeah. and then rode the next day and the next day. But I hit the ground and like I hit the ground like on a angle with my hips And then my hip, I just hit it so hard and on the perfect angle that my right hip sheared and then it tore the ligaments in my hip. I could have done that and landed in the wrong angle and it rotates instead of shears. And it just, you are right. Like you are never safe. And unfortunately, when you get on that bike,
1: it is what it is. Yep. You just got to take as much precaution as necessary. And that. You know, that's what I say to everyone that comes and talks to me about that, you know, a pair of CDI Nebrose these days is nearly $3,000 for two of them. But the people out there know that a minimum of 10 grand you're going to spend for an ACL operation.
0: And the that's six months of your
1: life. Your life, you away from your sport that you love, your family problems, work problems, you're not making money. You know, it, it's it's a no brainer to spend the money on knee bracing, but people, it's difficult because there's so much money necessary these days for top of line protection. Yeah. But you really got to think if you're going to play these games, you've got to look after yourself. And that's not just protective gear either. What did you say before about stretching at night, oh, about yeah. looking after the body? That's so critical too. And I've emphasised this for years to the writers that I've taught and columns that I've written how stretching and how mobility is so important, you know, muscle uh, development to a point, like look at Ricky Carmichael, a short, nuggety guy. Look at back in the day of uh, Anthony Gobert, pretty short, nuggety, quite muscular, didn't get hurt that much when they crashed. The Malcolm anatomy...
0: Stewart? Did you spend much time around Malcolm when you were hanging yeah, with Yeah, well,
1: I, I got asked to train Malcolm at the oh, end of my right. Michael Burns situation yeah, and right. that's another story too. I spent a fair bit of time around Malcolm um, and – that only went to its demise because I got involved with the parents too much.
0: Yeah, right. And
1: hate to say this out there to mini bike parents, but they were your best mini bike parents example ever. Yeah. I was warned by the Kawasaki factory mechanic at the time that I got to know quite well when I was training with Michael Byrne who was on the same team as James Stewart, do not get involved with James' parents. Yeah. But unfortunately I was approached by the team, the manager of James and James, and then because James and the parents torched the manager in a number of ways, I won't go into that yeah. detail, but he left. He went, ah, no more of this. Put my hands there. I'm leaving. I'm getting out of this game, even though he might have been making a lot of money. Yeah. They're putting too much egg on my face. And then it was up to the parents to handle myself. And then that turned to a point where at the Toronto Supercross, I think it was, he ran off the track, <clears throat> came back on, Mike Preston did the jump. James didn't uh, even didn't even look. Yeah. Right. Preston T-boned him, cleaned out. him out. Yeah. Whose fault was that? The trainer. How? Yeah. Well, that's what I say. How? <laughs> oh, that's heavy. It was the trainer. And we didn't train him right. But then if we back up four months from there, where I sat down at the MGM Supercross with James and said, Okay, James, what do you want out of me next year? Yeah. James said, I want to beat Ricky Carmichael. Outdoors, I want to beat Ricky Carmichael. Okay, James, you think you can win the Supercross? Have you got the skill for Supercross? Yes, yeah, Stephen, I've got the skill for Supercross. doesn't need that much fitness, does it? It means more than skill, flow. You've got an amazing way to minimise expenditure of energy. And he did. He flowed. He was so yeah. nice on the bike. His technique was amazing. And I can prove that point by... The first time we got with James, we physically tested him. We did what most people know as a beep test yeah. or a shuttle run that you do at school. Oh, I don't
0: even want to know what he got. Yeah,
1: well, a beep test over twenty meters, and we we did this at the AIS Institute of Sport in Canberra for many years with riders, and we knew a certain level would be a competitive rider, but didn't have to be an amazing level, but yeah. a certain level. Anyway, we well, put James through this test. And I was amazed that he only got to 9.2 oh. or 9.5.
0: Dog oh, shit, I bet. Which is
1: basic, yeah. really,
0: really basic. I got that in grade four.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and that proved to me that that guy was all about technique, about flow, about minimizing expenditure of energy. And that helped me analyze the sport a lot more and the way uh, my technique the way I developed technique and the way the body position had to be very neutral, push against the foot pegs, minimize energy expenditure, because that's the way that you need to do that if you're not prepared, like Toby Price, for instance, into outright fitness, he rides with technique. Toby is not fit at no, all. No, I know that. There is,
0: like, you know from riding with yeah, him, he It's like, it is ridiculous. How good Toby Price is, yeah. like, for all the shit I give him. And yeah. happy birthday, by the way. Yeah. It's his birthday today. Oh,
1: beautiful. Happy but birthday, Toby. <laughs> dude,
0: he ain't fit yep, at yep. all. And I- he he's won the hardest race yep. on planet Earth twice.
1: Yeah, mate, I, t- I take my hat off to that guy. And there is other guys out there like him that get by with pure ability and fitness and flow. Chad was never flow. fit. Yeah. No, it's- I
0: mean, I'm sure he would have been fit. Fit. It's so
1: critical. Not like Ricky Carmichael fit, you know? Yeah. So back to that conversation with James and- Pull this up a bit, see. We, we developed um, a technique around training him that was more about fitness and less about Supercross during the Supercross time of the year. Shane Booth was there. Even Cody Mackey flew from Australia. I was going to say Australia. that's when
0: Cody was there. Right? Cody
1: went over as a, as a, a rabbit in yeah. front of James to chase. And we had all these very cool programs. He was doing motos on his jet ski in the dam, or yeah, they call right. it the pond.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And we With developed the all these things that were fun for James because he didn't like riding a bike. He didn't like yeah. he liked riding his motorcycle. He liked having fun. So we developed a ways around all of that. But that's where the parents, soon as they saw, they think his training went off the wrong way and they gave us the rocket. And, and – mate, James still owes me money today and I'm really dark on the parents, you know. Fortunately, when the the mum came to Australia one year, I fronted her and sort of said, Sonia, what are you doing? What are you doing to us? I said, I tried my heart out for James yeah. and we did everything possibly we could. And you blamed us for something that wasn't our fault at all. And it just made me feel better to front her and talk to her. You yeah. know, I didn't threaten her or none of that. Yeah. And, and, but you just know, get it oh, off that's, your chest. that's the way it goes. You know, they they just wipe you like you're dirty, you know what. And it really annoyed me with some people's attitude. When you take the sport to heart as much as I do, mm. people don't realize that. The- and what you're
0: like an all in kind of dude. Yeah. Like, even to the point, like, I, I I don't think you would treat measuring somebody's knees any less seriously as training James Stewart to yep. beat Ricky Carmichael. It's just yep. y- who you are. Yep. So it, it makes sense that, you know, it, that shit would really affect you yeah. when you put so much into it it.
1: it. it really hurt me. It really did because, you know, I had aspirations that maybe I couldn't ride with the best in the world but maybe I can you train help them, yeah. and help the best in the world. And I knew from meetings that we had with people around Ricky Carmichael when I was with Michael Byrne that my training program with Michael was so close to what um, Alden Baker mm. was doing with with Ricky, so close. Because I remember we were talking to one of the riders at Michael and Michael, and I looked across the desk at this restaurant, looked at one another and raised our eyelids at one another and went, wow, we're on the right track here. Yeah. And, and I, I knew we were on the right track. But in saying all of that, you might be on the right track, but it's all about the athlete that you've got.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: He could be motivated in some ways, but he may not be like Toby Price with that killer instinct that goes. Just the off I, switch I, too. I'm I'm going to show them. There's, there's nothing's going to slow me down here today. I'm going to be there, and there's very few people out there with that mental capacity to overcome all in front of them to be the best. Mm. And yeah, no matter how good you think the training is, you've got to have the right athlete. You know, I see that all the time these days, that's for sure.
0: Oh, and James is the kind of guy, like, competitive. I've played golf with him a bunch of times. It's just not that fun. Like, he's just so gnarly competitive. I couldn't I couldn't hit a, a putt without him judging the read and being like, <laughs> mm, I don't know, man, I feel like you're a cup to the right. You know, like, just constant, constant. And anytime you hit a good shot, he just walks off, and you, he's just fucking with you the whole time. <laughs> but you imagine that guy on on the bike, knowing physically, I think he's the best ever on a bike. I mean, and I've even I've said it to Ricky, and I he, technically, oh, I just think in terms of like what he can do yeah. on a motorcycle, oh, yeah. I just yeah. don't think there's a better person. Yeah, and like you would have seen it at the, his house too, like the shit that he can do at the house. You're just like.
1: What? This
0: is like on another level again, man. Like, it's just so crazy that what that guy just has. And then you mix that with the competitive nature of, you know, the the famous Bud's Creek moto where he crashed in the first turn on a 125 against a lot of 250Fs at that stage. Waxed everybody. And that is just pure mental just yeah. gnarliness. Yeah. Like, I'm just not losing. I don't lose.
1: Yeah. No, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I'll, I'll hike back to the, uh, on Highway 15 in California, there, Kawasaki's factory practice yeah. track. Um, I've turned up this day. Um, uh, actually, I cycled there this day and, and met Burner Where, there.
0: Where did you cycle from, Temecula? Uh, Temecula. Yeah, yeah right. he lived that's down a in decent cycle,
1: Adam Street, Temecula. I went up the all the inland roads, which you could you could yeah. join there. And yeah. these are all the things that James saw that his trainer turned up as a rider, and yeah. and and that's why he asked me to train him when Michael lost his factory contract, and I had nowhere to go, and I was. Wow, James Stewart's asked me to train the best one of the best in the world. Yeah. I couldn't believe it, you know. Anyway, that's another story. And um so we're there this day and James is roosting around the Supercross track and he's doing this sequence section and and Michael's looking at him and just shaking his head going, "Yeah. How was he doing that?" It was like two seconds a lap faster uh, over cool. 50, 55 second <laughs> well, lap time. So James annoying. is two seconds <laughs> a lap faster than Michael, and Michael just shaking his head and despondent. I went, Michael, come over here. We sat down. I said, What we're gonna to do today, we're gonna to break the track up, and I'm gonna get you to run through each section. Trainers do this today. And, that's and, what that's what Carmichael is famous for. Yeah. And we broke well, Adam, it up sorry. back in the day. And he did each section 20 times. And as he returned to the start of the, to go again, I would show the lap board of what he did. I said, you look at the lap board and you remember what you did compared to that small section. that might have been an 18 section, second, might have been 16, 20 seconds, and see what worked and see what evolved on the lap, to- on the lap board. It might have been 20.2 and he used the inside line fractionally. He might have yeah. um, seat bounced to jump better than before and put that in your memory bank. So we went right around the track. We've got all the best times and now he's within 0.3, 0.4 of James best time. Yeah. With all these best sections together. Okay, mate. You remember all those sections? Yeah, I do, Stephen. I remembered. I did that. They did that. Okay, let's go out. Let's go out and do it now. Yeah. Let's go put it together.
0: Whereas the difference is like James, that just comes natural. Yeah. That's just his resting state is yep. is that. Yeah. But yeah, Jeannie Carmichael, that's what she got Ricky doing. Because uh when I spoke to BT, on the podcast, he said, we just did, they just would call it, um, intervals. So they just have a sec, a segment of the track. And then it it was game on at this cone. And then you did a few sections. It might've been 45 on an outdoor track, maybe 45 seconds stops at that cone. And then you rest when you circle back and then you do that 45 and just for hours. And it was, I think that I can't remember what he ended up saying, but you had to do your best time that you got in the section, you had to do it 10 laps in a row or you couldn't go. Yeah. And then they'd do the gym stuff on top of that. But that's a Ben said he made his biggest increases as a rider when he started just doing these segments just yep. religiously yeah. and relentlessly.
1: Yeah. Well, it helped Michael. That day he was, once he put it all together, he was only 0.4 of a second off James's time and he came back with a big smile on his face when it showed him the board. See? You're as fast as James Stewart. You just got to put it together and adapt and apply yeah, your technique. It's just going to it. take
0: you longer because you're not him. Y-
1: yeah, yeah, and that made a big difference. And he was building momentum, Michael, back in the. I think oh six oh seven 07 yeah. uh, time. And in fact, he went to large uh, the last uh, supercross race and he was really building momentum through this year. And Carmichael was there. I remember he, he was hanging with Carmichael in practice lap. He set the, much the same lap time. And then the poor bugger, fragile as he was, Michael, sometimes, he fell in the starters, tore his thumb right back, tore yeah. all the ligaments. And then he was out for three months, yeah. came back to the outdoor series, couldn't perform because your thumb is so critical on a motocross bike, the, the team dropped him because he wasn't, you know, doing the results. And that was the end of Michael Byrne, unfortunately. But, you know, and let's look at Hunter Lawrence, he says. Look how fragile he looks.
0: Yeah. There are some riders. What do you think that is? Because so my point before, when when I brought up Malcolm, man, that kid don't break. Yeah. Hit the ground hard, didn't he? Fuck, he has. <laughs> I have seen him, cr- like, crash, crash. Yeah. Prop where – the whole everybody's just running towards him and then two seconds later he gets up and then he just keeps riding and yeah. then everyone's like, oh, okay. Yeah. But like, I have seen him hit the ground and nothing. And then you see a guy like, uh, fuck, yeah, you like a guy like Michael Byrne or maybe Hunter Lawrence mm. and, you know, they're just these injury ridden guys. And I just wonder, I just wonder what that is within their physiology and like, can you change that?
1: Yeah, I really think, I don't know. I honestly don't know when I see people doing that. But what I do know and what I've developed and I've written about in ADB magazines, that if you develop yourself as a younger person in things like stunt training, mat falling to know how to fall, um, flexibility, we've already talked about. A certain amount of muscle tension in the body to absorb the hits onto the ground, then you will bounce and roll much, much better. And that's why, still today, I have a crash on the mountain bike and I've got up sometimes thinking, Should have been worse. <laughs> How did I hurt myself there? You know, that's amazing. I just scratch my head and go, But it's because I've got this way of falling and I tuck and roll, and but. You've got to learn that. Yeah. And this is where developing young rider today, it's not all about going to these mini bike race, even the best bling on the bike and putting him in all the colours. It's about the things you do away, getting him into karate, getting yeah. some respect for the sport, teaching them some stunt training, how to fall. All those things make a huge difference. Um, fitness, nutrition, hydration, a younger younger time to learn how to do those things. And that evolves the, the rider but you can't always guarantee that the young kid's going to want to do that either. Yeah. So it's only certain people that are going to want to follow what dad says because after a while, dad doesn't know. mm and they've got to have a special person around them to say do this, do that, train on tough, tough tracks. Don't even train on a track. Just make a track out in the bush somewhere and ride that mm. because it's difficult. You know, there's so many other ways to do things to make it difficult and better for yourself than just do the the regular, what everyone does.
0: Mm. Man, the, so I've been doing jujitsu three years and like, I've taken it like really seriously. Like do the nationals and state title, all that. And man, The number – like, it has made – and I say it constantly. People probably sick of it. I enjoy – I stopped racing bikes. I stopped riding bikes completely for almost the whole time I lived in America. Eight years of just – I rode a bike two or three times. Because I was like, I'm sick of getting hurt. I'm not fit enough. But I just – it wasn't fun for me. Like, it felt like I was going to fucking war with this thing every time (laughs) I rode. Started doing jiu-jitsu. And I do a lot of stuff in the gi with, like, the jacket on. And it's just this crazy grip strength. You're constantly like, I'm trying to hold onto a grip. And then they're taking two hands to break my one. And there's this constant sort of grip battle going on. And then I I have a fairly good natural flexibility in terms of like muscle tension. Mm-hmm. But what I'm finding that I don't have a lot is like a lot of good joint mobility. So I've, I'm like really flexible in positions. And if someone pushes me into something, I can bend like as far as I need to go, but in terms of just that static kind of moving stuff on my own, my own stretching. But So I enjoy motocross now. I can't wait to ride. I I went to Day in the Dirt last year. They did that 45-minute race. We thought it was a team race. You (laughs) ended up having to do the full 45 minutes, but that was the first time I'd really pushed myself to be on the bike for a long time, and I hadn't done anything, no riding. All I'd done is jiu-jitsu went and did this 45 minute race and it fully changed my, my thinking about what it takes to get fit. And it's kind of what you're saying, you know, like you don't need to get on road bikes and pound out road miles and do the things that, you know, maybe like a pro guys would do. That's, that's sort of their job, but I was able to get this base level of fitness through doing something completely Mm. different. And then because of the challenges that that sport put on me, I could see like, oh, my right hip doesn't work properly. And then I dive into, you yeah, know, hip mobility. And, yeah. and I'm reading um, I'm reading a book now by Kelly Surratt. He's like one of the – he invented that mobility WOD yeah. sort of app. Yeah. But it's called um, Becoming a Supple Leopard. And it's just this full manual of the correct way that your body should move, tests that you can do to, to test proper movement – and then a diagnostic in the book of how to then fix it. And, man, I've been reading it. I think I started it Sunday. And there's just things like in the gym today I was um, going through, like if you basically put your feet on the ground and then you don't move them sideways, but you just twist it and talk it, that lights up all of the muscles in your hip and glutes. Mm-hmm. And then you're in – you actually have like a foundation for movement and then your hip is in the socket properly and it's allowed to move. And it's the same if you're doing a push-up. And what do people tell you when you're on a bike? <laughs> Grip with your toes and put your heels in to squeeze the bike. Yep. And it's like there's – when you really care and learn there's it's so easy and so obvious the the things that you know you kind of you could and should be doing it's like it's all out there you've just got to think about you know think about the what you're sort of trying to improve and know that you can improve it and then just put it in place and a lot of times it's not that hard to to correct the problem you know
1: no not at all and you know different aspects of riding a bike. We've talked about flexibility and durability of the body and eating well, feeding it well. And then then we come to technique on the bike, you know, and and I heard you talking with Daniel McCoy on one of the podcasts that I listened to about you both agree that it's all about technique. Oh, I totally agree when people are beginning, as we just talked about, it's all about technique, developing the right skills, not only on the bike, but off the bike. As we talked about martial arts or jujitsu or something that uh, explains your ability to use the body in different ways and flexibility and durability. But then, as the rider develops, I've noticed that, and particularly now after many, many years of training and being involved, and more recent years, I've been involved with Kyle Webster.
0: Yeah, yeah legend uh, yeah one of the nicest people yeah, in know he's such a
1: lovely guy he really is he's a really nice guy and that's really what attracted me to yeah. Kyle because he's such a nice guy and and you know he's very very um uh very nice to everyone speaks yeah. well uh, says thank yous all the time just appreciates what he gets yeah you know? and and with Kyle you know and our other other writers I've really noticed over the years and when I look back, Technique is not everything when you get to the upper echelon. Yeah. To get there, you need technique, but you look at people like uh, David Thorpe back in the day, sat back on the seat. Pekka then had a hopeless elbows-down style, but David still won world championship. Pekka yeah. still comes second number of time world championship. Look at Ricky Carmichael that flapped off the back of the bike a lot. He wasn't the perfect James Stewart American player. Um, uh, maybe a uh, David Bailey technique yeah. that's or Ricky Jean-Michel Johnson, John michel Bale. Bale. Yeah. Um, you know, so when you get to a certain level, then your ability to develop your own technique, I think, is quite right. And then it's all about the headspace. Yes. It's not about technique. It's worrying about how much do you want it, like we said it with Toby before. How much do you want this? Are you prepared to push through the tough times? Will you practice enough? Will you eat correctly, will you sleep correctly, will you stretch, will you do all those things to become that all-rounded athlete to be able to do it. And sometimes, like we said with Toby, it's just your determination mentally that gets you through those hard times. Yeah. You don't need all those bits, but everyone's different. Some people need a percentage of all of those things.
0: Kyle's a guy that wants all the percent's done right. He does. And he operates well like that. Toby's a guy that just wants to get on it and just hold it flat yep. and – You know, so you are right. I was noticing too the other night. I've been watching the GPs, and I thought that same thing for the first time. Like when I spoke to McCoy, and I'm like, "It's all technique." I, you are right in saying that because, and what I'm wondering, you might even be able to give me some insight here. But it's like there's just a level of like proficiency and balance and knowing what the motorcycle will do based on your input. So once you know the bike and you've done so many hours and that that base technique is right you can then deviate from it to when you've got wiggle room Mm. where you still know how the bike's going to react and when I crashed I was running in a brand new bike I just I did something that on my old bike that I just didn't have to react to yeah and then this this time brand new bike did something that I didn't think it would react like that I ended up crashing and it's one of those that, that sort of made me think I'm like, so these guys that are then, so you've got technique, which you do everything properly. You're going to have a level of speed and then you could probably get more speed if you go outside of that technique bubble to push it. And, you know, you kind of get a bit crazy through a turn or slide something way further than you, you should or be way off the back or charging through bumps. But the techniques got you, To this level, where now you've got this little excess where you can push it a little bit further, and you know the bike is going to step out, but you also know it's got that limit. And maybe it's the guys that can operate in that little excess zone, like a hurlings or a tomac, and they can just they they know they've got that buffer there where they can overcompensate for technique, if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: no, most definitely. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to the the physiology uh, of the person and the psychology to be calm under pressure. Mm. So the heart rate's lower. You're not using as much tension or nervous energy on the bike. We've done a lot of AOS testing with this sort of style of thing and putting a heart rate monitor on the bike and your adrenaline on the motorcycle pushes your heart rate up 10 to 12%. Mm. So if you get off the bike and you look at your heart rate uh, monitor afterwards and go, "Oh yeah, I was uh, I was 185, my maximum is 190. Mm. But I rode, I averaged 185. Well, if you take 10 to 12% off that, that's about where you were because you weren't riding anaerobically for twenty minutes. Yeah, you're riding aerobically, and that puts you back into the aerobic range or your IAT level, your anaerobic threshold level. So, so people get a bit. Um, misunderstood with that. But as you get more experience, you work on your technique more, you flow more, you're smarter with your line selection. Therefore, your brain slows down. You're not as tense. You're allowing more room in the brain to think about all these things that are happening naturally. Mm. And that's why time on the motorcycle, a lot of time on the motorcycle allows you to act very quickly and naturally. And that's why for those people out there they have ridden dirt bikes and then maybe gone road racing, because so I had a, quite a few years of road racing, that it's such a split-second decision in road racing to catch a slide or a, mm. a front-end wash, where on the dirt you've got more of those split seconds to to compensate, to move. So it's all about time. It's all about managing your yourself with your bike, understanding how it works, mm. and then putting the time in to getting this finite feel on the motorcycle. And then with all of that comes with a lower heart rate, comes what James probably had back in the day where his heart rate was down. He was analyzing everything and flowing really well, body position good, not using too much energy, not fighting the bike, but working with the bike, and all that makes a difference at the upper, upper levels, that's for sure.
0: Because mm. essentially with the bike, and this is how I've always thought about it, me and you, there's a, let's say there's a 180 degree turn. Me and you, were side by side, both of us experience the same thing. You're Stephen Gaul, I'm me, right? And there's a point where I'm going to go, fuck, need to hit the brakes. There's a point where you're going to go, fuck, need to hit the brakes. Otherwise, you can't make that yeah. turn. And I've always just wondered, like, does James just have the fuck i got to hit the brakes thing, like 40 metres past me? And is that is that a thing that his brain is so... Speed is like a relative term, essentially. Like, he, I think I'm going too fast at X point to make this turn. That's whatever, like, impulse hits my brain. Does James have that thing further down the track? Or you know, Is is speed this relative thing where, because time, it's like we can measure time. Everyone would agree mm-hmm. what a second is. But is speed the same thing as time?
1: I reckon they develop it through constant riding. They develop this ability to read and and they can see that they can go through that corner faster than you can because they look at it and go, I've done that before. Mm. I'm going to go through the corner. So I, I believe that's a, a, a developed skill over time when you start as a kid and you work and you de- de- develop the approach speed into corners, different things, and you understand the motorcycle too. You know what mm. grip you're getting. You're getting feedback through the bike. You know that, oh, yeah. Hold the throttle on. I can get through the corner at speed, and sure enough, it happens. Yeah. But when you aren't developed, you haven't put as much time on the bike, not as much experience. You're just not sure, so you that you back off that little bit earlier, and you just you're slower.
0: Yeah, yeah, because it is. That it's something that I've always wondered. Where they're like, are they just born with that shit? Like they just don't, no. You know, I don't think so. Because I, I, it. I wonder that you know, like time. We can watch the seconds go. You and me can both look at that time and agree that it's the same. Mm. But if we were coming into a turn, you'd hit the brakes at a different point. Are we disagreeing on what fast is? Yeah. In the in the sense of it's like a, it is a thing like time. That's always been something I've kind of had mm. in my head. Is like, is that just what's going on?
1: Yeah, I'm sure. It's to me, it's just developing it, and I know for myself from riding from a young age from go-karting from the age of 5 that you just you enjoy speed you enjoy the fun of it and you want to go fast and i think that just evolves into understanding when you're on the track you can go quicker and you can you can you can slot into different things because you've started at a younger age and you've ridden so much, you've just developed it. And it, it shows that the people who spend time on the bike yeah. over and over and over by riding all the time, a Ricky, a James, a, a, a Jeff Leask, a, a myself, a Kim Ashkenazi, a Craig Dak, a Glenn Bell, you know, a, a Craig Anderson moving into more future times, you you see that those guys spend so much time. And I know that the time Kyle's putting into his riding at the moment he's – they're putting in a lot of time. They have to to stay up with people, to stay with their competition.
0: That makes sense because we did Cape York last year and it was 10 days on a bike. And then – so in that – I just noticed little things like you come to a creek crossing and then you'd look, oh, that's too deep. And then I'm just got the 450 I'm going Whoop, and then I'm doing a 180 wheel stand, whereas at the start of the week I'd probably Mm. got off the bike and I pulled it back – And again, that was just time. And then the Townley thing, I went and spent four days riding at Townley's and just fatigue got me, but I just felt so great on Mm. the motorcycle. And maybe that's the problem with amateur riders like myself or Guy. We get out on Saturdays. That Saturdays is the day that you ride. What, What can you really do? In that short period of time that's separated by another seven days to really, because essentially you, you, you're trying to change the wiring in your brain in a way when you're on the bike, because the motor skills and the processing and the functions that your brain has to uh, compute on a motorcycle are just so like different to... You know, you're driving a car at 60, and your seatbelt, and you do it. You know, well, even that, like when you first get your learners, how you're tripping on driving a car, mm. and then you get to our age, and it just it's becomes second nature. Yeah, but yeah, I mean that that Cape trip really opened me up to just what how valuable time is that on a, consistency. On a, yeah, develop just back skill to back to back feeling
1: control, and the best thing I'd say to you said I oh, once every week I get out for a ride. The best thing I'd like to say is that. When you understand technique, when a, a rider goes to a, a trainer and, and learns a little bit about technique and can recall that, slow down to go fast. Yeah. Don't try to rush it. Slow down, get the technique right, and you'll notice the speed will just come. Yeah. And you won't feel any quicker. You'll just go, oh, wow, well, you I love time. Slower. I'll just chop two seconds off. Where'd that come from? Well, you are slower and faster, felt more comfortable. And you've got to pick up your speed and your aggression with your technique and you step up and then you, you'll slow down to go fast again. You just slowly progress further and further. I
0: think that when it comes to the technique side of things, what I think has helped me is not thinking about aggression, but commitment. So like committing to the technique as opposed to trying to do the technique fast. Mm. So when you come into a turn, so I know that I'm going to sit down, I've got to go left, my left leg's going to have to come up. I want to point my left toe in, pretty much pointed at my mud guard for the whole time I'm around the corner. And then the the throttle is what adjusts your lean angle. When you start to dip in, you don't put your foot down. You stay committed To that technique, so I think that that's probably. I I think when I was riding, and I'd be like, "Okay, I've worked on this technique enough. Now I'm going to do it faster." It's like, well, that's probably not the move. The move is probably just to commit harder Mm. to the to the technique, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I always think also you can commit your brain to too many things on the motorcycle. Mm. One of the big things I used to try to say to people when we did a section, maybe corner entry, mid corner, corner exit, is to think about a couple of things at a time. Mm. Hone your concentration because you can't think of too many things. It's impossible. That's when you start to screw up. So slow down, work on your technique, a couple of things, maybe where you sit in the corner, how you put your leg out for the corner, where you point your toe in that one motion. Mm. Maybe you work on that first. Then – once you get your entry right, then you work to mid corner. So you sit down at the right time now. We pick the right line going to the corner. We're body positioned compared to the style of corner, whether it's a rut, berm, or a flat turn. Now, when we pick up the throttle, how do we pick up the throttle? Do mm. We pick it up gently. Are we on a 1252? Two, two, are you on a 254 strike? We're on a 450. How do we pick up the throttle? Is it progressive? Is it aggressive because we're in a rut? We've got got traction. So you work through all these things progressively and you'll develop your skill by working on just a few things each time, not trying to cloud the brain with too many things, which then you make mistakes mm. and you go, ah, I get frustrated and that's not working and you go back to your old technique. Or, But it's definitely honing in on go slow, slow down to go fast, work on a couple of techniques at a time and progress through it and your speed will just come.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, I've, I started thinking after the technique work that I did where I'm like, you know what, man, you're so like – off whack here that you probably shouldn't do a moto like you don't need to do motos at this point like you really need to figure out how to ride you've been riding your whole life not good enough yeah. you got You really got to figure out
1: yeah but in motos you can spend the whole moto working on the same technique yeah, too yeah. and maybe change it up you might go five laps with one technique and then go okay now I've worked on corner entry, I'm going to work on aggression, getting out of the corner, body position right, waiting the outside foot peg as we get out, uh, picking the right line, the flow, picking up the berm correctly, maybe like that, working on the exit. So then you might overcook a few corner entries, but you're getting out aggressively. So then you try to tie it in. So now mm. the five laps, I'm going to get out good, but I'm going to break at the right time. Now I'm going to position, position myself as corner entry. I'm going to straighten myself up into the corner so the front brake works better before I pick up the berm or the rut this time. So you'll go through sections and put it all together to make it work and and it's those guys who just go ride or trail ride yeah. they're never really going to progress very well
0: mm. and bits- I, I was doing that for a long time yeah i think um when when you were in your prime racing and the most dominant that you were were you thinking about a lot of this stuff like even back then, or was it coming very easy?
1: Uh, No, it just came easy back that time. But um, let me go back before I started racing at the higher level. I started doing the very, very first ever training school in Australia. was run by Len Williamson, who he and I got together to do the first ever Australian motocross donations effort in 84. But Len was an A-grade motocrosser uh, with one of his friends. They had the Soft Earth Motocross School. And they invited soft me, earth. soft earth. Where did that name come from? Who knows? They're just soft <laughs> yeah. earth. They like loam, you know, soft yeah, earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like it. and we started doing that way back in the day um, at Kembla, Mount Kembla, yeah. you know, near Wollongong. Yeah. yeah. And I was a demonstrator and a, and a helper to them. So I learned a little bit about technique back then, but it it through my years of of coaching, then it would remind me all the time of what I needed to do. And then I would ride thinking Mm. about my technique, but your technique when you're racing has to happen fairly naturally by your training. So when you're racing, you're thinking about the race. You're thinking about where you're coming. I'm 10 seconds behind. Uh, I've got nine laps to go. Am I pulling up enough time? Who's the guy behind me? Uh, he's coming. Okay, so you're working out your race strategy at the same time as your lines, your flow, inside bumps developing there. Maybe you go to the outside berm, the inside ruts forming a big hole and I'm going to flow wide next time around there. I just made a mistake. All this is going through your brain all so at So you one need time. to be
0: technically autonomous.
1: Yeah, you've got to just adapt. And that's why I say that as a young rider, you need to train on difficult conditions, not easy conditions, so you adapt to the ever-changing conditions of a, of a dirt track or a motocross track, yeah.
0: What sort of um mental space would you try and achieve when you were riding your best? Like did you ever think about when you come off and you're like, oh, I was in such a good place then or...?
1: Yeah. My mental space prior to racing was to sit by myself and concentrate on lines. And and I, I didn't find out to later years when I went to the AIS what um, confidence, uh, self-motivation, uh, focus, um, self-talk, uh, things mm. like that made such a difference, which now when I train a rider, which doesn't happen very often because I'm sort of away from it now, but with, with Kyle, for instance, when I trained with him, it was all about more the psychology of going fast, not technique. I didn't go into technique that much, more the psychology of what you're doing when you do it. So back in my day, I'd think about what I was going to do, the lines on the track. I'd feel comfortable if I set a quick qualifying time. That would help me go into a, a good headspace. Yeah. If I went in slow from qualifying, had a crash in practice, that would put me into a bad headspace. So, getting right prior to it, feeling good beforehand, getting the right sleep, eating right, all made a difference to me. Where some guys, they like to go in with a bad headspace because they want to prove to themselves that they can yeah. do well. So, we are all different. You know, some of us like a perfect build up. Some of us like a rocky build up because I'm going to show myself here. Even yeah. though I had all that, I'm just still going to do it. And some people are good with that.
0: That's like Chad, man. Chad mm. needs to be pissed off yeah. to do good. And Matt Moss is the same. Yeah. Like, if you want Matt Moss to win a moto, Like, literally, start an argument before with him before the race. It's just some guys, you're right, they just operate so differently.
1: And you're right, that's why reverse psychology, you try to, you think you're psyching out a rider by saying something. Half the time, all you're doing is aggravating him to go, Well, I'll show you.
0: He needs that.
1: Here I come.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) You reckon I'm slow? Well, I'm going to show you right now. So, you don't, you typically don't pull that game out on some particular high level. I never tried to psych someone out because they knew what you were doing anyway. If they're mm. half smart, it's only the younger guys, the inexperienced guys that you could do something like you know they pull up beside you in the start gate. You get to start from there. What are you doing? You know, yeah, like yeah, something yeah. like that, or you know, yeah, you know, some crazy. Oh, your back tires looking a bit low, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, it could be just something that psychs that guy out. But the the experienced guy, the good guy, will go, oh, golly, What are you trying to say to me? I, I know what you're on about.
0: So what were the what was the uh your when you look back on your two wheel motocross career as Mr. Motocross like what are like the most fondest memories and the the biggest highlights of your career
1: well definitely winning Mr. Motocross for the first time was a big highlight in 78 and then uh the last one that I managed to win in 82 um, along the way, I had that full factory bike. I won nearly every moto on 81. Um, that was sort of good, but it was sort of got to the point where I was winning too easy or I was mm. getting to the front too easy. So those aspects were were definitely the first and the fourth were, were a highlight. You know, the regrets were that one that I lost to Anthony in 79 and then to uh, Ray Vanderberg in, in 83, where I knew I had a, my, my game on, but I, I screwed up. No fault. They rode amazingly. My fault, that's for sure. But um, other highlights through that particular time were really just achieving. You know, m- my my dad never went to a race that I ever did. Really? No. Nah. Wow. I know that seems strange, but he went Even to- Even when
0: a- you were doing so, like yeah, you were the poster he, boy of the sport. He,
1: he said he was scared uh, when mum came along, and mum helped me with good words, where dad would say- Silly things. He didn't understand competition. Early in the career, I told him to shut up, um, which didn't go down too well because I didn't want him to brag as well. Mm. I've never been a bragger, um, and I didn't like that. I I wanted reverse psychology, where you come from behind, not trying to think you're in front all the time. And and so, yeah, I really enjoyed showing Mum that I could do really good. Um, But. Highlights from motocross are basically those things. Um, Our first effort into motocross donations in 84 where we went to- Where was that? Varberg in Sweden. Yeah. When there was a difference, there was motocross donations and there was trophy donations. Motocross donations was the 500cc, trophy donations were 250 and coupe donations was 125 Uh, on three separate weekends. Oh, really? We in Australia, we didn't have the money to go to motocross and trophy because- Lenny Williamson and myself—we started the whole thing. We raised all the money. We did the entry. Really? We did the whole thing. No help from the ACU back then. We were the total instigators of the of the beginning. And I rode that first year with uh, David Armstrong and um, Trevor Williams. Um, you know, we we had a it was a four man team then. We, we had a great race. We unfortunately didn't qualify for the A main back then. David got a flat tie, couldn't get up a hill. Uh. Um, we didn't quite make it. We got to the B main road against France in the B main. I still got a picture of myself side by side with Joe Bay going to the first corner. Um, you know, so we finished well, but not real good. But that taught us a lot in the early days of how prepared you had to be Peli Gronquist was there that you're helping us because we're in Sweden, spoke the language and did all the the right things and, and, and it just all evolved from there. And for years, Len and I ran that whole thing. We did it all. You know, got help. Um, Gary Ben was in Europe. He helped us by staying with him. Got a Yamaha truck, all sorts of things to help make the thing. Gary together. Gary Ben's a
0: bit of a G, isn't it?
1: Oh, Gary Ben's done so much Man, behind he's the like,
0: scene. He's the I've been around that dude so much. Never heard one of these stories from him. He just doesn't. He won't let no, nothing go. No, away. no.
1: He he keeps it to himself. He's a quite achiever. What Gary, a gangster though, a- awesome guy and. You know, one funny story that Gary relates to that he puts egg on my face with this one is we're in, um, I think it was either Sweden or Checo or Germany. I can't remember exactly. But we got to the track in the morning and someone misplaced the keys to the truck where the three the three at that stage bikes were in the back of the truck that we needed for scrutineering by a certain time, and we didn't have the key, we had to break into Gary Ben's factory Yamaha truck. So what do we do with the Vito Mercedes? We cut the hinges off the back doors to open the doors from the other way, lift the doors off. So Gary got for years after that. Yeah, in Australia, mate, you just cut the doors off. It it's right. You know they put so much (laughs) crap and shit on Gary for years at the Aussies. I just cut the doors off. Should be right. (laughs) We had to. We had to get. I I I, I honestly can't remember whose fault it was that they missed the key. They left it back at the motel, but that was a funny story. And poor old Gary created the brunt of a lot of uh, you know people. Poking fun at him for many, many years, but Gary has been seriously at the head of Australian motocross for many, many years. He's
0: underrated. He is. Super He's super underrated. underrated. Yeah. And because yeah, you think about the technical aspect of CDR. Mm. Like, and you heard McCoy say it on the podcast. That's the best team. Yep. That's the best team to test for. And consistently over how many years has Craig been running that program? Yeah, you know, probably 20, 20 years. Yeah,
1: now. yeah, more, more. He stepped into that in '93, I think it was, because um, I know I managed the team in '90. Then Andrew Club took it over for a year, and then Craig took it. Craig Duck took it over from there when he got to the end of his career. Um, but yeah, t- hats off to Craig. He's run a very professional, oh, yeah. very tight. Um, team all that time. And Gary Ben's been right at the front of it, you know, and Gary's now sort of semi-retired, drives a truck for him, still helps with the technical side, but yeah, a legend.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. It's cool to, it's cool to hear it too, because I would have never have even known a lot of that stuff about, about him. And like I said, I've been around him a lot. Mm -hmm. It's cool to, it's cool to really hear how much someone like that has done for the sport.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, most of the young guys wouldn't have a clue on on what a lot of those things have happened in the past. It's created the pathway for a lot of these young writers today. And the AIS is a good example of that where we got into the Institute of Sport in Canberra um, through the main boss of MA back in the days, came from basketball, and he knew an inroad. And he said, Uh. why aren't you guys going to the Institute of Sport? I'll get on top of that. So I was right there at the the time and I helped and was there and I did the AOS camps right through to they faded out, I think, in 16 or 17 where we stopped going there. And nowadays the AOS is a very different place. You can't take our national teams there as easily. But that was good. We had – if you went through a list of all of the riders who have been through the AOS in road racing, trials, dirt track, motocross, supercross – Toby Price has been there. It just goes Todd on and Ferris. on. Yeah, Waters, Ford. Ferris, Ford. It just goes on and on. All yeah. the top guys over years have been there. And you're never going to sit down and go, oh, they learned it all through the AS. No, but they learned what it takes to be an all-round athlete. And a lot of them took heed of the advice. Some didn't quite well. Some of them used it to get to the top and some of them didn't. And I'm never going to say, well, I, I was bec- it wasn't me. It was because – I helped open the door to the AIS and develop those programs, and I had a lot to do with all that through that time. But those guys now need to realise that those small trips down there open their eyes to different things that help make an all-round athlete, and that's what you've got to be to get to the top in any game.
0: Mm, No, 100%. When you decided then to hang up the boots with that knee injury and then you moved into the sprint car stuff and the other forms of racing, what – what was your headspace around getting into those other sports?
1: Well, way back in 84, when I was at the pretty wall, the peak of what I was doing in motocross, my brother, who was racing midget speedway cars at the time with no wings, and he had a big crash at Kembala Grange, just south of, of Mount Kembala or just south of Wollongong. And he got red eye, where we all the, the white of the eye was just all red from spinning and flipping over so quick. And he he ran a business with just him and someone else. So Dean says, "Oh, Stephen, do you want to do you want to drive?" And I went, "Yeah, mate, I, I love going fast. We had a bit of go kart. We had a go kart track. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had a go kart truck. There's no reason why I can't do that. So jumped in, and I immediately made an impression. And we were going fast straight away at our local track at Parramatta. Um, I culminated in 88 winning the Australian championship in midgets. And, um, that blew a lot of regular midget guys away because I come from this motorcycle guy came out of nowhere, doesn't even do the national circuit and he wins a championship. Well, I got a little lucky on the night, but I read the conditions, right? I drove to best of my ability. My brother set up an amazing car and our team put together an amazing car with a VW autocraft motor at the time, which was the pinnacle of the game at the time. And I managed to pull it off. And my headspace back in those days was uh, in 88, I was going away from motocross into Speedway. I could see my career going in a different direction, but I never left motocross. Yeah. Uh, Yamaha uh, sponsored me to continue the off-road academy around Australia. So I was doing 50 to 60 to 70 calls throughout the year around Australia, drove around Australia a couple of times, jumped around everywhere and- Then during the off time of the year, I got into the wing monsters and when I first drove a sprint car with those wings on top with 700 horsepower, we can go into the corner at Granville completely wide open sometimes, the car wings down, you're doing 100 mile an hour, I'm not BSing you, and you just go around the corner like you're on rails. It just opened drives you get out of the car. I had a grin so friggin big. I couldn't believe how much fun that was, you know. So then my new thing, instead of riding the 500cc motocross bike, was trying to control this 700 horsepower monster that grips clay like unbelievable amount when you get it right. So... I did years of that, but I never left motocross. You know, we did the AOS camps. So I did that for free for a lot of years, just to help the sport. Traveled Australia doing my my training. I really enjoyed being around motocross. But then I got my rocks off on the, in this sprint car, you know. And then, to my detriment, we didn't have the money to travel around Australia to, to race the national series as well as others. Um, we didn't have the the big truck with a multi-wing spare, yeah. the multi-wheel spare. You know, we had the trailer, of the Ford Bronco. And I remember going across to Perth one year for the World Series, which was the Australian World Series. We had a 44-gallon drum in the back of the trailer with a long hose that we'd fill up because we couldn't afford the petrol to go across the Nullarbor. And we'd pump the fuel out of the trailer into the Bronco, which was sucking the fuel like crazy. But, you know, sleeping on top of the trailer during the day to catch up and sleep because we drove through the night. All those things just gives you that experience, you know, but... um
0: Which you wouldn't have got when you were a motocrosser.
1: I was treated like God with motocross, you know. N- not that we, in the early days, we drove everywhere. We didn't fly everywhere like the boys have to do. We didn't have five helmets sitting in the trailer and things like that. You know, the boys are sport these days. But that's the way life goes. I'm not knocking them for that, but that's the way life goes. And you only develop yourself in what you know. Yeah. You know, back in the day, that's all we knew. That's why we did it. And with Sprint Cars... And the point I like to make here is I went to racing cars and I went backwards to where I started in motocross, to where I had to start from the beginning again, and then I didn't have the experience. I didn't do it as well as I knew because then I had a business. I had a knee brace business. I had a motorcycle school business to run. I had sponsors in, in those areas to look after. I had the Chase sponsorship to get afford the dollars to go sprint car racing. We become the Valvoline team driver at a local track through a good effort. And there's a story right there too amongst young riders that might be, or anyone listening to me right now, is how I got that sponsorship by being the team Valvoline. Sure, I did okay on the track, but my team presented an immaculate car every time. We cleaned it between races. We turned up with an immaculate car. But one night there, I finished a main race. I don't know where I finished. I'm sitting on the front of the front tire of the sprint car, sweat's pouring out of me. It was like mid-30s, you went um one layer of Nomex, three layers yeah. of, of flame-proof gear, got a head sock on, you've got very no ventilation. You're Just coming like, out of the hot car. I don't want to use the word prima donnas, but I was watching the the, the touring cars on the weekend and Todd Kelly's um Rick Kelly's talk, sorry, talking about how they've got cold air vending cool into suits the helmets, and shit. cool suits on. I'm going, wow, boys. You know, they don't know what's tough. Sprint car guys, when you do it hard, you've got none of that stuff. Or some of them might have a bit of it these days. But it was anyway. I'm sitting on the front tire. Sweating like profusely, throwing down a drink, and these two kids walk up to me, you know, and most guys go oh, leave me alone, guys. Yeah. You know, like but I always had time for young kids because I knew that was when I was a kid. Well, you, I wanted yeah. to speak to people. Yeah. I went to the speedway at the Sydney Showground. My heroes were Bill Warner and the Super Modified and James Stewart and Jimmy Airy and John Langfield in solos. And I watched those guys and, and I was i I was in awe of those guys, you know. And you go up to for a signature at the end of the race and and these kids come up with a with a book, with a signature, and I gave them I had chat. How you going, boys? What would you think of the night? How would you go? And and then over there is a guy watching. It was Dad. Who was Dad? Prom, promo officer for Valvoline. Yeah, right. So Dad rings me up. Hey, Stephen, um, noticed how you're doing good at, at Granville. The other night you gave incredible time to my two kids. I just noticed that you do that. You know, your car's presented well. Hey, we want to look after you. And that's how you get help. By doing the right thing, you don't knock people, you know, you you're clean. The guys that are too outspoken out there, people don't want to take you on mm. because they know they're gonna get, get themselves into trouble. So you gotta be shut your mouth a little bit, get on with the job, put your best effort in. And just like I'll use Cole as an example, he's a lovely guy, he gets yep. he gets the opportunity. You know, it's
0: hard to get bad from doing good. Yeah. Yep. That's something I've been trying to just think about in general, like across the board so much lately like even not talking bad about people I don't like mm. you know it's so hard to get anything bad out of doing yeah. doing good yeah. and i think that it that is kind of forgotten these days
1: yeah yeah for sure
0: but Man, Kyle Webster is like it cannot be stated how nice that kid is yeah it yeah. it actually can't be overstated yeah. and what he did at the Nations as well last year, like him and Regan and Dean. That just deserves another extra shout out as well because those boys killed it.
1: Yeah, they certainly did. And I wish we had um, some rich daddies out there that went, hey, boys, we need to get more experience overseas. Let's get you together and go and do a few races over Mm. there and and do all that. You know, unfortunately – We've got people out there, and maybe they don't know how to do it or they don't know which avenues to take, but we've got the talent in Australia. There's no doubt about it. Look at the Lawrence boys that have gone over there. Look at Chad that went for virtually not much, kid out of curry curry, you know, and and look what he's done. He's awesome. He's a legend of Australian motocross Mm. and the world motocross, and it can be done if you got the right opportunities and you led the right way along the way.
0: Yeah. Well, you think too, like Jack Miller, MotoGP podium yep. last weekend. Yep. Who else am I missing that we've got that are just killing it? We got Casey Stoner, you got Mick Doohan, yep. the goat of MotoGP. Like, yep. yeah, you're right. The talent isn't a problem. I think it's just the way that, yeah, you develop that talent. And and I think that, yeah, everyone, the, the thing that, people don't really understand is like you go to the U S and there's kids on sixties that are allowed to jump a hundred foot jumps. Mm. Like I've said it before with Todd on the podcast, like the, why do, why do we have some of the best surfers in the world come from the gold coast? Cause we got the, some of the best waves yeah. and there's nobody that's on the beach going, Hey, little Jimmy, it's two foot. The uh, surfing Australia regulations state that you can't surf. When it's over two, no, they go out there and they can surf and they can be in the, you know, like you said, difficult tracks. They can be in these difficult situations that they then overcome and it adds to their skill base. But man, in Australia with motocross, like we are so handicapped with the way that tracks are like allowed to be built and regulations and all Mm -hmm. that shit. And, you know, like, yeah, grading them in between mode. Oh, we've got a few couple kids crashed on those braking bums those couple kids need to learn how to like deal with it mm. because I mean I just don't I don't know how you can develop talent in Australia if we don't have a level of you know facilities in which like essentially we don't have snapper rocks tracks in Australia. Mm. You know, but we got Snapple Rock's Waves and we've got Mick Fanning, we've got Joel Parkinson, we've got Rabbit Bartholomew. Yeah. You know, you've got this lineage of of people. But And like you said, you went over to America in the 80s and got whooped. I don't think that that would have been the case if you, you know, grew up there and you had the same level of dedication mm. and the same level. It You probably could have reached any level, you know, because it essentially like what's the ceiling for a guy when – you know if you've got the level of talent that you do and the level of dedication and you know what why should there be a ceiling on an athlete in terms of how fast you go right yeah
1: no there isn't that's for sure and you know i proved that to myself when i went there in 80 for the first time and finished 10th to 15th the last year i went in 85 i was at the front with winning a lot of those pro races with top pros around at the time so I evolved and that's what helped drag Australian motocross up during that time. Yeah. You know, we all evolved at the same time and and it, it does and that's what happens when you bring these Americans back for Supercross. It just brings the game up, doesn't it? Well, it's look just, at
0: Cloudy last year. Yeah, Cloudy was such a good example and I think, honestly, he was probably one of the only ones that really said, oh, Justin Brayton won an American Supercross last year. If I can run with this dude, yep. I am that good. And he kind of proved it. He was top five in West Coast Lights this year, which is a way harder, yeah. kind of not way harder than the 450s, but to be a privateer in the lights class over there west coast as yes. well like if cloudy was on the east coast this year he would have got podiums a hundred percent in supercross i reckon yeah, yeah yeah and it was you know built off the back of like he essentially had four years of justin brayton as like the rabbit kind yep, of situation yep. not you know Chasing obviously it, yeah. yeah he's like looking up to it's that guy. To it all. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. and that's what then led like the progression that he made from his rookie year on a 450 to then leading the championship over JB at Marvel stadium. Like it's crazy.
1: I really hope that we get a, a good promoter from motocross in Australia. I really hope that we can get back to doing those development camps at the AIS or a form of that. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, MA have gone through some really tough times mm. financially. People don't know what really happened behind the scenes with some, um, Uh, less than correct control by the top echelon of it. Now we've got a guy who comes from the sport, Peter Doyle. He's a good dude. He's a great dude. He was uh, a manager of a road race team that had extreme success in America for a number of years. He's been there as a rider, Kawasaki motocross team way back in the Anthony Gunter, uh, Trevor Williams days, then went to America with Matt Beladen's team and they proved by winning so many championships over there in the superbikes he is a really good guy and has the sport to heart you know not like a, some of the others they tried to bring in that really just wanted to get as much money out of as possible mm. but but Peter's great so i'm really hoping that we can get things going again with that development and, and help lift our our game because there's tons of coaches out there these days there's a lot of coaches and hopefully from that coaching Base, we're going to get the guys that really, really keen to see the sport progress and to help the sport in the future and 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 help it, you know. Because I know there's some good guys in the coaching area and, you know, Chris Urquhart, Shane Booth, yeah, uh, Lee Hogan in Victoria. Toddie's doing heaps as well. Todd, yeah, yeah. Todd, Toddie Waters is doing plenty. It's it's just really good to see that that skill getting out there and putting their love back into the sport that made them who they are today.
0: Mm, man, You're, the coaching thing, like, Streeter, you did a – how many goalie schools have you done? I uh, did a five-day, I think a three-day, and a couple of one, – one or two days, and the Supercross. Yeah. My housemate is a pretty much like well, – he's, he's like a um, – he films for surfing, and he's like a big dude in surfing he's done a Stephen Gould oh, across really? school because oh, cool. I was like, I was like, oh, I got Gawley coming on. Cause he, he told me he used to ride. He had like an RM125 and, uh, and I was like, oh, I got Stephen Gaul coming on the podcast. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Oh, I did a Gawley school, man. <laughs> like literally everybody, like so many people can relate yeah. or have that past experience of doing a Stephen Gaul school. Yeah. Like it was crazy the what you guys developed through Yamaha and it's even when I was listening to you say that, you know, they sponsored you just to do that, you're probably the first writer ever to get sponsored for not writing.
1: Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Without Which a is doubt. crazy in itself. Promoted the sport, was around Australia, got media coverage as I went with schools. And it, it was really, really great that that guy at Yamaha, Stephen Cottrell, was from oh, the, it was Stephen was Cottrell. Stephen Cottrell yeah. was my boss through all that era. Yeah, right. And he he had a love of the sport, developed the sport, and really helped me do my job out there to promote the sport, to promote the younger, younger guys. It was such a special thing.
0: Yeah, and that left a bit of a legacy too. Like I think it really set like a foundation of coaching because – I've just been thinking about it in general a lot lately. Like I said, through the martial arts stuff that I do is that we don't, we do three or four five minute rolls at the end of our hour and a half class. So that would be what you'd call a moto the rest of the time. Like we're training. Mm. It's everything that the majority of my time, there's only two days a week where I go and I ride the whole time. Yeah. And it was, you know, then when I'm thinking about the whole time I played football it was just, we didn't play, we played football one day a week and then we did training and we did coaching. And for whatever reason, you know, until the goalies, you know, like your goal school came along, but it wasn't like a, uh, I guess it was just like an intrinsic part of developing a rider. And then I think it's sort of only just now coming back to that um, effect, like you said, with guys like Lee Hogan and, and, you know, Chris Urquhart and those guys.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's so critical to really you know hone your skills along the way. And for me, after all those years of, of coaching, which I started I think in seventy eight, I trained right through the years that I raced, and then did it professionally around Australia right through the nineties, and didn't finish until um uh Lyndon Heffernan took over the the coaching in I think two thousand and three. Yeah, the academy. Yeah. Yep. Well, there was thousands of people that went through those courses from Parapidou to, to Tom Price to Newman and WA to Kununara to Darwin to Nullanboy on the coast to, uh, you know, it just goes- It would have
0: been, even aside from the coaching, it would have just been a crazy personal experience to oh, see that much of Australia and meet that many people. It was
1: amazing. I've seen so much of Australia and, you know, I still get people coming up to me these days. Nearly every second week, someone will bump me somewhere or erase me and go, oh, I did one of your courses. And it makes me feel so good and so proud that they came along and they've, they're happy about what they learned, or they might have been passing it on to the kid now, or they used it with their riding, both trail riding and motoing over the years. And, you know, I've had some guys come up to me and go, oh, I did your advanced school at Dargal back in the day and where you talked about philosophy and psychology and nutrition, hydration, and how you plan. And, and you went through all these little workshops that you did at your advanced school. And he said, at the time, I thought it was a bit over the top and all I wanted to do was ride. He said, but I got into a business and I started to apply your techniques. He said, mate, now I'm a multi-millionaire and I used a lot of your your aspects of your training. He said, mate, I want to thank you. And he grabs me and hugs me. And, no and I went, wow, like that, so good for me to like, you can't believe how good I felt when he did that, you know? And and just recently I've had a couple of, I won't say names, but a couple of top guys that have, have been in the top of the echelon of the, the game and in coaching and in racing. And they sent me an email out of the blue saying that, golly, I just want to thank you for, your direction and what I saw, even though it may not have been direct, although I did a bit of direct, but what I saw you do in the sport and and, and where it's headed me in my life. And, wow, I sit back and go, wow, that's cool. I, yeah. I help people like that. And it makes me feel incredibly good. And that's yeah.
0: what I mean, like, to, for you to – that's why I'm being so stoked to just – to even get you on because, like, I'm not even sure you're aware of the the like the legend and the legacy, and I mean, you pro, you pro, the move is not to be too attached to your own mm. legacy and legend, yeah. which is why you don't do it. But it, I think every now and again, it is cool to just acknowledge, like, just mm. to, to do what you've done for literally like thousands and thousands of people, and you know the the lives that you could have bought. Enjoy like prolonged enjoyment through motorcycling and, yep. you know, the racing and the training and the – it's just – and I was thinking it before when you were saying um, you're – oh, yeah, I'd try and have good thoughts about this and then, you know, I'd think about my headspace. And it's like all of the things that you're doing and whether it's the, you know, the way that you wanted to clean your truck or, or you know, clean the sprint car and talk to kids and eat well and sleep – It's like the – it seemed like you always had these goals and these focuses in your life and then the processes that you put in place to achieve those goals just led to a great life Yeah, because you were just constantly ticking the boxes of just doing kind of the right thing always and it's like you just end up being the sum of – you know, the whole is the sum of its parts and the parts are just you ticking these boxes – so consistently for so long.
1: Yeah, it's nice to think about it. Then, And you look back in hindsight into your life of, for instance, the knee brace situation where I became the Australian distributor for innovation sports products out of America. Well, because of my love of motorcycling, I didn't want to give up the training of young guys and the travel. Well, that happened concurrently with knee brace sales. So I didn't over those years through the 90s. I was still racing. I had two kids. My wife was just Amazing what she did over that time, running two kids, running an e brace business, taking entries in from around Australia, shipping it out to me as I was traveling, doing schools. Yeah, and
0: your daughter at every national for years, like yeah, helping
1: you. You're just amazing what my wife Gay did. But um, thinking about all of that, you know, going back in time, if I'd concentrated on my medical business, I could have made way more money if I set that up right and invested. But no, I love motorcycling. And I didn't want to leave it. So that's yeah. what I d- that did that as a part-time thing and motorcycle was my full-time thing. But motorcycle never is going to make you a lot of money yeah. unless you become a Chad Reed or a McDoan or at that level. And I was above that. I was below that. Yeah. So, so you know, to my demise, I, I took this route. But then when you think about the lifestyle I had, the people I've met, the people I've influenced over the time, you can't replace that. No. You know, you might burn a whole lot of people in business or you've torched staff because you haven't liked them, you've been a hard head with being a boss or something like that, which you've got to be if you want to run an effective business these days. But I went this way and I, I, you know, enjoyed people being around. I helped them as much as I could and I didn't get negative with people and, and that makes me feel now that, you know, I'm really happy with my lifestyle. Even though I may not have got what I could have got, but who cares? Yeah. It's all about your memories and your life and, you know, there's enough to carry on. As long as I've got a mountain bike under me and a good family around me, I'm happy, you know?
0: Yeah. And I just think that it's like you didn't really, seems like you didn't really chase things as much as, it, it was more like just the processes. Like you just always did the 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 process right as opposed to, you know, like just setting a goal and then doing whatever it takes to, to reach that goal. It was mm. more just a, this consistent, like yeah. co- just doing the right thing over and over.
1: Yeah. Once it's proven in one way, you tend to keep it going in life. You know, you typically mm. don't turn unless maybe some bad influence in your life creates a different direction, which happens to people. But, um, but
0: that's also just the way that you deal with that given situation,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And how you treat and manage yourself along the way and your decisions, you know, that's why I might sound a little critical here, but I get very despondent um, with some people who may not have had or think they haven't had a good upbringing because they've made wrong decisions along the way. Maybe they took to the alcohol, they took the drugs, and that's led them to a certain place in life. Now they've got nothing. And now, now I'm expecting someone else to pull me out of that trouble. Yeah. But who made that decision back then? I know that's not maybe the right way to feel empathetic for those people, but I find because I was so driven in one direction that I tried to calculate where I went that I find it hard to feel sorry for some people sometimes. Yeah,
0: yeah, Yeah, because it's always a choice.
1: It is a choice.
0: Have you ever been drunk?
1: Um, In competition factor, only once. With competition goat, factor. Goat breaker. What when does that they, mean? Competition. He always had a competition. Yeah. No matter what it was, there was. I know, can go through some really funny ones. And, and I've got a good story to tell you in a second, which involves some of the top riders Are. I was sort of past the peak today, but um, there was always a competition and and I lost a bet with some competition that we did this particular (laughs) time. So I had to drink a Miller's can, one of the big Miller's cans, and that had me playing a guitar, which I never played, and strumming and singing. And and, uh, it was pretty funny. My wife was around to witness that. Not many other people saw it because I typically never got real loose in Australia. But when I got away, sometimes when people weren't looking at me because I created this Stephen Gall image, so yeah. to speak, which I still have today, that I don't want to get too loose. And most people don't understand really what I'm like. And people who listen to this who know what I'm like will go, yeah, golly you're right there. But no one sees that side or very few people see that side. Yeah. But yeah, I've got a little bit loose at times, but never with drugs, alcohol once, but I play games a lot and I've had competitions a lot, all started by this goat breaker. And this competition I'm going to tell you about was one year in the mid 90s, we were taking helped by MA and motivated by Motorcycling Australia to take a group of young motocrossers over to America for a, a four week training camp. Yeah. And I did it one year, and Gary Ben came with me one year, at the second year, I think it was 95 6. We did this. And one year we had um, Michael Byrne before he became a star. We had Shane Booth. We had Chris Urquhart. We had Andrew Colleycott. Yeah, right. Who became a legend of the Dakar, Dakar as yeah. well and lost his life at the Dakar. Um, we had all these guys that Rod Faggater did it one year. Oh, right. Yeah.
0: Another – Absolute Legend. like, yep. nicest dude ever, ah, top guy. He the man, hey. top
1: guy. So we were there this one year, and I, I forget. I remember some faces, and um, and actually this year Shannon Johnson, yeah, who right. was AJ Johnson's son, has a Marita Norco bicycle dealership. In Epping, in, in Melbourne. Yeah, apparently yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Now
1: under lock and key with the COVID situation.
0: but He got crazy into cycling, didn't he? he like trying kind to of be pro cycling very, for a while. And very,
1: very good at it too. Yeah. He's got legs like you would not believe. Yeah, like I remember. Huge tree stumps, as quadriceps and hamstrings, but he's a good guy. Um, and actually I bought my recent Merida from him and he's yeah, he's, right. he's a great guy. Anyway, he's there. Shannon's there and others are there. And, and we walked into Goat's Place this one evening after we had dinner out as a group. And and um, goat says straight away he's always in a contest. Says ten, there's twelve of the guys and me and goat. Okay, boys. If I put a handful of Ben Gay, Ben Gay for people who don't know is like Tiger Balm.
0: Yeah, hot,
1: yeah. hot ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I put a handful of Ben Gay and Gailey's hand, he rubs it into his nuts. He said, "Will you all do it?" And they were all looking at one another going, oh, if, if goat says and Gawley does it, well, I better do it. So so he squeezed it onto my hand and I rub it, rub it on and it burns like crazy, oh. this stuff. I don't know how many people have, have, have ever experienced it, but it burns like crazy. Anyway, being a bit of a tough guy at the time and being through a bit of hurt, I just – didn't show any expression. <laughs> Just go, yeah, boys, it's a bit hot, but you'll handle it. You'll handle it. So goat squeezes twice as much into all of their hands, of course, and they start rubbing it onto their their, their balls, you know. <laughs> and then within about 20 seconds it starts to get in. And the, oh, it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. These guys are running in all directions. Shannon goes out the door. This is in winter in California. It's bloody probably five or six yeah. degrees outside. Gets the hose. He's down to his knickers. He's trying to wash oh. it off his old, his old boy and his, his, his balls. And I'm just losing it. I tell you, I'm losing it. And even Shannon will break up today over this whole situation. But they're the games that Goat played. And it it toughened you up. It made him tough. Like yeah. he, he did things like one year for the Golden State Series. He, he developed a situation where before the last couple of rounds, he slept in his sleeping bag on the track the night before the race to to show the boys how tough he was ca- and came out and won. He had a, a bet with Mitch Payton, who was a tremendous game player too. Yeah. Mitch Payton from Pro Circuit. I've yeah. been involved in a few things with Mitch. I've got another couple to say about Mitch. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he – he slept in the boom, won the 500cc championship the next day, and then he had to shave Mitch's hair, you know, because he won the contest. Really? Yeah, yeah. I've got pictures of that. Ah, just unbelievably funny. But that was goat breaker all over. It was all about playing games with one another and being in the game. If you didn't play, you're soft, you know. So, it, yeah. but it was never about drugs. It was never about bad things. It was all about overeating or or eating. Cookies or yeah. just something, you know, drinking ten sodas or eating all of that pizza or something that would eventually make you sick or something like that. It wasn't nasty things, but it was just a lot of fun.
0: That's so cool, man. That's so crazy. The only time you've ever been drunk was off a, a game with it one is. of the one of the mates.
1: Seriously, it is. Yeah, and I've I can honestly say I've never touched a drug in my life. Yeah, that's
0: I've awesome. never
1: thought that it was worthwhile or. Probably, and this might sound a bit soft to people, but I had an image that I and I said that that was the wrong thing. So I'm not going to go down that, that 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 road, you know. And and I think if you can't get your rocks off by getting on a mountain bike, yeah. riding your roadie, getting on your moto, doing a big jump, um, if you can't get your rocks off by doing that, well, don't get it off by doing drugs because mm. you're just going to put yourself in a hole eventually. It's going to cost you money. It's going to ruin your your relationship. Look at all the problems in life that alcohol being being overdone and drugs are being overdone as cause in the in life. Kills people. It's just, it's terrible.
0: It really and, is. And so like, so you made that um, not like the persona because you sort of live by it, but was that almost like, were you sort of doing that to keep yourself accountable in a way that you like put it out there and you just drew that line in the sand and become a very public thing? Was that like a way of you just saying, well, like, I definitely can't now?
1: It was. It was. It was just like the image I still carry today. I can't let myself go to any other image. I'm mm. I'm torn by what I developed when I was younger and what I think's the right thing. Well, I'm not changing.
0: Yeah. But you wouldn't even want to change that now, right?
1: No. no. And I've had people along the way, and, and I won't say any names, but top people that I've helped train. And because I won't have a beer with them, I won't, won't hang out and do the things they want to do. They don't think I'm a friend. Well, you're not my friend if you don't like the way I am. Yeah. So I go, okay, no problem. Move on.
0: Yeah, really. People just wouldn't accept it. Yep.
1: Oh. Yep. But that's the way it goes. Yeah, When yeah. You lose with friendships and, you know, it's it's just you got to be a bit hard with life in some ways and that's the way that I've been a bit hard that if people don't want to, you know, play my game or, or accept me for the way I am, well, yeah. so be it.
0: No, I'd agree with that. Hey, what? how much time were you, What's the time we've been running Oh, sweet. I was, I was wondering, I didn't know, because we still got a bit of shit I wanted to wanted to get through. I was like, "How about, are we going to have to come back again? Um, what are we going to... Oh, the next thing I wanted to talk about. So how did the Mad Max thing come about?
1: Well, there's a good story. Um, in my Dargle five-day academy days, where we ran the schools for five days on the Hawkesbury River with the Smith family down there, which was became a, sort of a, a legendary place to run schools. Well, a guy came along one year. Um, well, he rang me up first on the phone. Guy Norris, his name was. He was the stunt guy that did the first Mad Maxes, oh, and he was the that guy. Makes sense. Yeah, he broke his leg on one of the Mad Max and toughed it out on a crutch. I've seen photos of him finishing the scene to get it done before he had his broken leg fixed. And and Guy came along. He rang me up and said, "Oh, Golly, um, I wouldn't mind coming to one of your courses." He said, uh, "Will I learn anything?" I went, Well, oh, I don't know, Guy." I said, "I don't know how you ride." Tell you what, mate, you come along. I know who you are. You come along. If you don't like what you do, you can leave. If you if you like what you get through the week, pay me at the end of the week. Up yeah, to you. Right. I'll leave it to you. That's the way I sort of was. Anyway, at the end of the week, he comes up with me with the money in his hand, gives it to me, gives me a, hey, mate, I had a great time. It was really good. Through the week, he did a little bit of a, a seminar for everyone on how to fall, got oh, up on the good. table, put a, a mat down to the ground, jumped off the table, rolled off onto of his feet, went, and everyone's going, oh, well, nothing. You know, he rolled on his feet, proper stunt guy. Yeah. And and it just that's how I developed a friendship. And anyway, he said to me, he said, Stephen, he said, in the future I may have something for you to do. So five years later, guy rings back up again. Hey, Stephen, we're um, starting a movie. I didn't even tell me what it was at that stage. Um, Would you mind help me with a few developments with a bike and stuff? like? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And we were on the Gold Coast then. This was after 2000 when I moved to the Gold Coast from Sydney, got out of the rat race of Sydney, which I mainly left because it was a rat race. I like the Goldie. I'd always liked the Goldie in Queensland. Not so much what happens in surface, but outside in the hinterland, the nice place to train and be at the weather. It's just awesome. So I um I started helping him out. We developed the bikes, which turned out to be for the Mad Max Four with Fury Road. Yeah, and eventually I found out what it was for, and I put in a lot of time with him. Again, I did a lot of time for free with him, but the then then we went to Broken Hill for um, six weeks of pre-production. They call it, which is basically practice. Yeah, and then I started to learn the enormity of of Mad Max or the movie set in general on how much money they spend. 13 million went into the vehicles. They went to Broken Hill. $13
0: dollars. Yeah.
1: And out from Silverton, 5Ks out from Silverton, there's a great photo there of an R1 Yamaha with a. Yeah, yeah, you know, YZ forks on it to handle the, the all valve. That was one of our jump bikes that we did at the time when we jumped yeah. these things. 22 inches of swing arm onto that bike, continental tire that fitted onto the standard 6-inch wide um, or 150-mil wide rear rim, um, a Dunlop 517 knobby on the front. We took one disc off because it was overpowered with discs to have two front discs on the thing. That was an awesome thing to ride in the dirt. And really, a, it was
0: good to ride.
1: Uh, it was amazing as far as smooth dirt because yeah, it had so yeah. much power. That thing we're talking 160 horsepower yeah. on the dirt with no traction at the back. And when we went to Broken Hill, back <laughs> to that story, we had these bikes and they developed a uh, a runway basically. You could land a plane on no problem. It was as smooth as two kilometres, no, about one kilometre long. It was wide, uh, probably a cricket oval width. No, no, half a Cricket Over width wow. probably in. And it was built up at least a metre off the desert floor. So how much dirt are we talking that they moved in, they yeah. packed down, and then we practised on these bikes up and down there, all the war rig, all the vehicles. Uh, you know, they had incredible concepts. When you look at all these bikes from Mad Max, the conceptual aspect of these bikes is just – it just blows you out. You know, and and – you know, I, I became the, the motorcycle stunt coordinator and I developed the group. Um, and they originally said to me, I want 17 riders. Well, we did it with five. Yeah. And we rotated um, all the girls riding. We just found that the girls didn't ride quite well enough, particularly in the deep sand, yeah. which is where they lived. So we got dressed up as girls. I trained Charlie Saron to ride. She developed off a farm as a rider, but she thought she was better than she really was. She did one which, training session yeah, with me and then said, I've got it. Handled it was right. Got to the scene that she had to ride the bike and was in all sorts of trouble. Anyway, we we helped her through that scene and gave me a big hug afterwards. We got a picture of and that Charlie's give me a hug to help me through the scene, which was really cool. But it, it was such an experience. You know the money they spend at that level of the movies. You know when I've come from the top level of Australian motocross, that's nothing. Nah, that's not even a scratch. Yeah, on what they spend. And I heard rumours that I don't know accurately, but they spent $180 million developing that movie. The contract with Warner Brothers was $150 million, and, and then they went to, to court, which Kennedy Miller Mitchell won that court case. But Warner Brothers probably has means of dollars out there. They're, they're back again. It's gonna happen. There's another one. And I can say that now because Charlize was on in front of TV in America recently, which I never knew about, but an American friend came back to me with with this and told me that Charlize was on the next one, and I can say this because it's not me taking it. Public knowledge. Public now, knowledge, yeah. Charlize said this herself, that it's all about Furiosa. Furiosa was the girl that looked after the five girls, the Immortan, yeah. who ran the Citadel. It's yeah. his five little precious little chicks that she tried to get away from him because he was a bad boy and did the bad things with them. And now it's all about her life 20 years prior oh. to the last movie. So you won't see Charlize in it because she's too old. Yeah, You won't see Tom Hardy in it because he's too old. Yeah, so there'll right. be new, new game, new guys there, new top. Uh, stars And do you think you guys will get the call back to do the I already the have. Really? I've already started wow. doing things. No shit. Yeah, yeah, I've already started doing things. We're already developing um, behind the scenes. Um, I'm already, and I've already, I don't know what level of crew. Or we don't know the script yet. Yeah. There's a lot of things to happen, a lot of things. We don't even know where it's going to be shot. There's a lot of things. COVID now has put everything yeah. up in the air. Um,
0: is Guy Andrews going to be involved with it, with it again, do you think?
1: With training. Guy Andrews, the, the Iron Man. Guy yeah, Andrews. Yeah, because
0: he was in it as well, was well, Guy,
1: Guy is a great mate of mine nowadays, and he, I met him just prior to that. Oh. And and Guy could be. I can't say because I don't select the drivers yeah, yeah. or the, the physical. I select the motorcycle side. Yeah. He's not a motorcyclist, so that's not my, my area of expertise. So, how did,
0: so it was Cody... Mackie, Robbie Marshall.
1: Robbie Marshall. Who else Michael it? Addison.
0: Yeah, Addo did it, yeah. From
1: WA. Yeah. And then Rob Jones. Now, Rob Jones is, an, is a top-level Australian trials rider ah. who went into stunt road bike work, went onto the world scene of stunt road bikes and came second in the world doing stunts on the road bikes, the stoppies, the turning, the wheelies, the scraping the back guards, all that great stuff to do within area. Well, Rob Jones has got incredible skill, really has. And not only on a motorcycle, but he did skill on some of the – the tractors, where the 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 hand to eye coordination of moving the bucket is mm. one scene there, where the war rig goes along and the war boys oh, are on the top, really? where the bucket is on the back of another that, vehicle yeah. and it swipes across and tries to wipe the guys off. Well, Rob's behind the wow. controls of that
0: because Fury Road was very manually done, like a lot of the stunts and stuff like that, like all real. Yeah, it was full on, yep. right.
1: The, the background might have been enhanced yeah. in post-production, but all of those stunts were for real. I was around nearly every one of them. I watched a lot of them. Did, I might have uh, been in a car because I drove as well for some oh, of the simple cool. things. I was in cars around some of the scenes and I watched most of those scenes and it was just, just amazing, just amazing. So we had um, Jack Field was there initially yeah. and Jack couldn't get back because of his work commitments, but we got a uh, another um, South African motocross guy that came along. But we did it with five guys and we all revolved and did different things. And when it was a technical bike scene, we did it. When it was a crash scene, the stunt boys did it. Because mm. there's guys like Ka- Cameron, um, Cameron, uh, Mike Turle. Um, there's guys who can ride bikes really well in the stunt area, but they know how to crash. Mm. So they give them that scene, not us, which is fair enough. And that's the way it should be. There's specialists in everything. And this time there'll be a specialist team again um so i'm i'm really looking forward to the challenge
0: that's awesome and
1: it, it's only because there's mad max that i'll go back there because it's such iconic situation and guy is such a legend himself you know he's developed into one of the the predominant stunt coordinators worldwide now with so many movies under his belt now it's it's really special
0: it was it's insane like so Mackie's one of my best friends we've been friends for fucking ever and uh it's insane to see what he has achieved in the stunt world mm. because of that opportunity for yep. Mad Max. Like that's a that's another crazy part to play that you've had in something like he he's been Johnny Depp's um, stunt double in Pirates. He's just he is really he's like one of the one of the dudes now. Yeah,
1: and one thing that people won't know, they might have think that Robbie M- Madison did all of the water bike work. On that movie, but actually, Cody did a lot of it on Triple X. A lot of it on Triple X. That's right. Because
0: Robbie got hurt, didn't
1: he? Yeah, and he had to send in for him, and he did a lot of it himself. So yeah, Cody's a very talented dude. (sighs) Right from the word go, I remember training him as a kid,
0: really way back
1: in Port Macquarie where they used to live. Yeah, and I've always known Cody, and and yeah, cool cool guy, really nice, just like um, I'll use Kyle again, Kyle Webster, just like Kyle, nice guy. but yeah, he will be back on again next time. He will be back on for sure. He's one of my main guys.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. Well, that yeah, and it I forgot about the link between you and James, and because you brought him in for the stuff at James's house too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that was because uh, I knew Cody, but also Shane Booth, who was because at the time most people don't know that I was handling James's training from California because I was asked by Matt Maladen to train him. So I was over doing the hands-on training with Matt or Shane was in Florida with Cody doing the training there. So it was was really good and we worked together and And um, Cody w- was very fast and, and, you know, he was like the hare that mm. James had to try to track down and he was only like a second a lap slower. But, um, yeah, he did really well. There's an interesting picture that's come up there of of uh, Tom Hardy on on the bike in the middle at the, at the bottom, that, second layer left. there. And he's on the, the R1 there, right there. And Tom's there riding the bike. He looks like he's riding it, but you know what? That's Cody. No. Is it? No, that's not Cody. I'll, I'll call, that's attached to the back of a ute. Oh, right. Yeah, so he couldn't ride, but that front wheel's attached to a platform to the back of a utility, and the camera's in the back of the ute, and he's filming Tom riding along. But just prior to this, which they used the footage, there was a scene where I reflected back to um, Charlize Theron as the as the Furiosa. She's leading all of the, the all of the uh, Volvolini girls to the Green Place in a particular time midway through the movie because the Green Place is where she was brought up, and uh, it was yeah. a green, lush, yeah, nice yeah. water around kind of oasis. Thing, yeah. So she's taking them there. But then Tom as Max. Runs them down on the R1, which is in this scene here, but actually it was Cody that rode the bike because he looked more like Tom. Yeah. Because when I tried to train Tom, Tom was a bit useless at riding a motorcycle. So I said to the the main people, I said, nah, let's not use Tom. Who else can we use? We tested Michael Addison and Cody is the best lookalikes. Cody got the nod.
0: Cody kind of does look – I don't want to say because like he – yeah. He's going to take it to his yeah, well, dressed up, he kind of does look like really good.
1: And then Cody had to Grumpy come from behind the Volvolini group led by Charlize. And I'm one of the riders on the Volvolini group and all of us stunt guys are riding the bikes. We had stunt girls on sleighs and all sorts of stuff going on. But we were riding and, and Charlize is riding and leading us out to the green place. But then from around the outside, drifts in this long wheelbase R1, which Cody's on. He's come from, and you hear it. You'd hear it. <laughs> Because <laughs> those things, I'm not kidding, they were straight out exhaust. It sounded like a Formula One. Oh, yeah, that would they have amazing. And he comes through, he slides in in front of the group and pulls it up. And then, of course, the camera cuts, and Tom gets on the bike and talks to Charlize and shows her the map of where there's no green place anymore. Charlize, sorry, you need to go back. We've got to go back to the Citadel. So they decide to turn around and go back then, and it all starts again go backwards. But, uh, yeah, Cody was awesome in that scene. Hey,
0: can you go to his IMBD? I want to. I want. I don't know that people know. Just go Cody Mackey IMBD and just go back to all like not in images. Yeah, go that, that top one. Let's see what Mackey's been in these days. He has done some shit. Mad Max, Triple X, Hacksaw Ridge, Pirates of the Caribbean. wonder what else we got oh go go back to that other one and then just scroll down a little bit yeah man animal oh that new animal kingdom swat westworld ncis goliath ford versus ferrari macgyver Pacific Rim. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's
1: amazing. That's our it?
0: friend Cody.
1: Yeah. He gets no he, like people just don't know. eh? that's so cool to see that. Seeing Mad First Max Mad down Max the bottom the two fifteen, where um where it wrapped up really before that, but that's when it came out. It took a uh, quite a while for it to go through post production and 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 yeah. So so Cody, yeah, great guy, great stuntie, um, and Suicide Squad who, as well. Who else is trying to mimic him at the moment? Daniel Redden.
0: Yeah right. Daniel
1: wants to go down that route too, and he's working to be a stunt guy. Got his qualification to be stunt. Can drift, can drive really well. Corey yeah. Creed too. Yeah, Corey. Yeah. They've
0: got their their deal going on together. Yeah,
1: eh? yeah, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah.
0: it's it's pretty. St- I remember Cody telling me because um, like we're both in America at the same time. We still talk all, quite a lot now, but we'd always have heaps of conversations, and he'd be like, "Dude, you should come and try and just wheelie a bike." You know what I mean? Because he reckons that a lot of the guys that that's why he's killed it so hard. So a lot of guys just don't have like that base level kind of skill,
1: yeah, yep.
0: which is crazy to think of.
1: It is. And now that I look back to what Cody's doing and then as a stunt guy, if you have a certain amount of time on camera, you get a higher percentage of res- residuals. Yeah. Now Residuals is that money that trickles in over time. Yeah. And um, I- I'll be out there to tell you that I've got $63,000 in residuals since Mad Max has finished. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome, eh? It's amazing. So, because it's like, all
0: union work, right? Yeah. And they, they fight for certain, like, union type yep. rights yep. and wages. And when
1: you're in the American Union, it's even better than the Australian Union, which Cody's in at the moment. Mm. But, um, I lose a fair percentage of every one of my payments because I've never bothered to join the Australian ah. Union, the the uh, MEA, I think it is. But I will before the next Max, yeah. which will come up sometime in the future. So I still don't know what's going to happen. But um, but Cody, you know, he's in all those movies. So depending on how much percentage of time you get in front of the screen- yeah that's when you equate to the best percentage of residuals. Now, if I go back to my CTI days, the guy that, that started, designed the first ever CTI brace, Jim Castile, who had the Castile Ranch that Ricky Carmel oh, used to really? ride. Same Castile. Well, his son, Dave Castile, is one of the foremost bike stunt guys in America. Really? And he left the family business to be a full-on stuntie because they make so much money.
0: Yeah. And it's
1: way less work.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, because yeah. so Cody did like he didn't just do the bikes. He's done like his rigging tickets, so he can like rig people's vests and shit for like the wire sort of stuff. Yep. He's yep. done like weapons shit. He's done ex- like he's just gone in and mm-hmm. done like every qualification. Yep. So you're
1: not just a bike stunt guy. Yeah.
0: Yep. And he's just done so much of it. Like it's it's pretty awesome, man. And like the cool thing with Cody too is that. For whatever reason, well, not for whatever reason, he fucking broke his femur twice in a row, (laughs) call him. But, like, he just didn't hang on to the dream, did he? He just was like, cut, I'm out. I'm going to do something better. Because not everyone can be Ricky Carmichael, but a lot of people even, you know, that are sort of younger and in their career and they're up-and-comers or whatever, like, they really do hang on and they don't look for an option outside of motorcycles, right? No,
1: no. But it's um that scene, that Mad Max scene, is is certainly something that is probably probably the highlight of my life. Really, to to do that, to go to Broken Hill for four weeks, to all the development of the bikes, you know, riding them, training hard through the whole time, um, then waiting a year, couldn't do it in Australia because it's too green. Um, the outback was way too green. Yeah, because we got
0: crazy rain, right? I don't,
1: yeah. It all came down from northern part of Australia, yeah. flooded lake air, everything was green, couldn't do it, so they moved it to Namibia, which is, was South Africa 93. It went independent as a Namibia, not South Africa. Um, that was the perfect location. It's, it was so dry and so dead in some areas because the, the area that we used for a lot of the scene scenes was there was 10 kilometres. Just everywhere you look was was nothing. Yeah. Nothing. And during the movie, anything that was green was covered over. So they built an artificial rock. There was even in one of the valleys, the National Park, they even built a rock, artificial rock over this tree that would have been 20 metres high, this <sighs> artificial rock, so that whenever the, the it was panned through, they would never seen anything green. It was just desolate and old and... You see scenes through all of that with with many, many bikes, cars. You know, there's some of the scenes are amazing where everything's going in a straight line. It, it never got any faster than about 70 kilometres an hour because that's the speed that the war rig could travel. Yeah, right. And you're only there, – there's an awesome picture right there at the top. Now, I'm on the bike. As you look at the screen on the right, riding that bike with a war boy behind me, that's me. Beside me to the right's Robbie Robbie Marshall. And Cody's in there somewhere. I know, Guy Andrews. You said was at the very back on the left hand side. That guy on the right hand side, on the go up right at the back on the left hand side of the screen, right at the back. Now, though, at the back, that guy there—that's Guy Andrews. He's a, a, a physical guy, yeah. making that swing because that whole thing, those pole cats that got on top of those—they were. 10 metres of carbon fibre poles and we, we trained exclusively with those. That's the first time that ever was used in a movie. That was, was probably Guy, Guy Norris's uh, idea. And when the movie was finished... We as motorcycle studies and the pole Cats were nominated for the World Stunt Awards in California. Oh, really? The year after it got got got, and we got beaten by the pole Cats on our own movie to to lose. Oh, so, so it was
0: like you versus the yeah. motor, yeah. So Cody yeah, so yeah, yeah, and I yeah. were
1: there to try to hopefully get the award. Oh, that would be amazing. But they got it, which was cool because it had never been done before, and they did some awesome things, swinging across chainsaw in their hand, and
0: yeah, so it was it was incredible. Uh, those War Boys on the top of that. That was um, done
1: for real, all that stuff with moving vehicles. I know one of the guys who was a um um parkour guy, yeah, he was incredibly well balanced. And he got shunted off the top of one of those in one of the scenes where the vehicle went a bit fast and got hit a bump, he fell from 10 meters up, 30 feet whammo down onto the sand luckily it was a sand floor oh. dislocated his arm uh but he you know he was uh, was hurt but those guys are, those parkour guys are so cool because we we did a scene that was cut from the movie unfortunately where i had to spin around a war boy that got thrown off one of the vehicles and he jumped on as i was spinning around him on the large bike and he got on the bike i hardly even felt him he was so smooth Just so and- graceful graceful and, and nice and flowing with his movements. He got on the bike, we took off and yeah. Oh, are you on, are you?
0: <laughs> Insane, eh? Did you yeah. did you see Cody crash the thing with the camera on the front of it? Recently? No, the um didn't he he crash with an IMAX camera on the front of the one of the bikes and he sort of said to him like that won't work. Like, it's not going to happen. I think it was in Namibia.
1: I didn't see it, but I knew of it, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: and he, he was like, I don't know, I'll ask him if I can even tell this story. But yeah. um, he was saying that he's like, they wanted to put a camera on like an IMAX camera, which was like 30 kilos or something, on the front of this R1 and then hit like a freestyle ramp to join in with the rest of the sort of the motorcade or whatever. And he's like, I'll do it, but it won't work. And he kept saying it over and over that they couldn't do it. And then uh, he just went, and just, and just exploded this thing, and they were like, he probably was like three, four hundred thousand dollar crash.
1: Yeah, there was there was so much weight on the front of those bikes. They put me into a scene once where the war rig's going down in the rock rider part on the early part of the movies, and it's going down through the valley where the rock riders lived in the hills. And towards the end, um, you might remember a, um, a, a rock rider comes down with an extended bike with a bomb in his hand. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, right. And I'm—I had to light the bomb, or the the, the assistant lit the bomb. That had to ride down this hill one-handed, which we, of course, were smart. We put a steering damper on the bike. Yeah. Then I had to hit a free not a, not a freestyle jump, but I hit a ski jump. because no good at getting any steep because it just goes over the top because there's so much weight on the front wheel. And I had to jump beside the war rig. So I did this a number of times and let go of the, the bomb as I it, it meant to go under the war rig and blow up and um, the, the war rig runs over you and all that sort of stuff. And I did this a number of times. And they did in post-editing of the filming – in Namibia, they went, no, that's wrong. You've got to, when Max turns and goes through the quarter window, <clears throat> pardon me, it's got to line up with, with Stephen coming down the hill. So we went back to reshoot that scene. You so, had to
0: go back to Namibia.
1: No, to, no, we, oh. we went back while we were there yeah, to reshoot okay. the scene. And this is where I like to hark on what I learned as a racer, what helped me do this work, because we went back to the scene and they had all of the stand-ins for the stars. Everyone's a stand-in. The stars are all still sitting in their vans, yeah. sipping coffee, getting massaged or whatever. And we're out there chilling, doing the hard yards, We're learning what to do, getting the timing right. Then I did it five times, this run, where I had to be in a perfect place to suit the view as Max turns to shoot yeah, through the quarter window. Yeah. With his, and I had to be in line to get shot off the bike. Yeah. So I did it five or six times. Never quite worked. But then the director um, says, that's it. Enough of that. Bring in the stars. So the stars come in now. They get in their vehicle. Now pressure's on, on you. Mm-hmm. You've got to perform. You've got to be in this right space. If you keep screwing up and getting over and flustered, it's wasting time. You know, there's th- not a thousand, It's hundreds of people around in doing the scene, you know, and expecting you to perform, and that's why you're being paid and that's why you're there to perform. Anyway, I'm, I'm really worried that I've missed it five or six times. Now I've got to do it. But I think, okay, think about what you can control, not what you can't control, which is what I teach people these days with racing. Think about what you've got to do. Thought about it all, timing. Yeah, come from there. Don't say, okay, do this, do that, do that. Got it first time. You know, And the, and George Miller, the director, is ah, great. Because we we got most things first shot.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, and he was so pumped that the stunt crew, the motorcycle stunt crew got it first time and didn't waste a lot of time with the crew getting getting the shot right. So I'm not I'm not bragging about the here, but what I'm bragging about here is the fact that if you use in racing or in stunt work some of the psychology that I learned at the Institute of Sport mm. by – do and concentrate on what you can control, not what you can't control, focus on the things that you can do, keep your head where your body is, all these little cliches that they come up with, it's amazing what you can do. Mm. But as soon as you go outside the screen, you start thinking about, oh, what's he going to say and what – I'm not, yeah, you lose it and you just don't do it, you know.
0: Man, that is just such an incredible experience. Yeah, hey, it was. To be over there doing the that. The
1: whole thing was just amazing.
0: Yeah. Know? Oh, I'm so glad you get to do it again. And your era, like Mad Max, the Mad Max one, would have been, that would have been your shit back in the day, too.
1: Well, that was the top of my game back then, yeah, when, when they did that out at Broken Hill and all that crazy stuff they did. And that, the first one was really basic, wasn't it? Yeah. Really basic. But the second one was good action. Yeah. You know, it was really good. And and Guy was the stunt guy in a lot of that. And uh, it was awesome to watch and how it's evolved. And, you know, they've got the the protocol that the stunts have to be for real. Yeah. They don't bullshit around. It's for real. And, you know, it's, it's amazing what they did and what they – put the crew to, but they, it's always about safety. But the first crash in Mad Max where the, the uh, XY Falcon roll, XA Falcon, isn't it? The first one that rolls over and over and over in that first scene as Max is trying to get away from the, the, the guys chasing him. That was actually Guy Norris who did that. Really? Yeah. He had a lot of my protective moto gear on. Oh. So as he was flicking around or, or keep trying to keep tight within the, the cab that he got protected. But, He stepped out, he tried to break a record of the most flips in a stunt there, but didn't quite do it. But it's amazing how those guys think.
0: I ain't in that headspace. Yeah, they're pretty,
1: pretty tough.
0: Yeah, it's a weird headspace to be in. I used to go mountain biking when I lived in in LA with this dude who was like a stunt coordinator. And like, man, he just didn't give a fuck. (laughs) Like, and he had no skill on a mountain bike like zero and you'd go riding and he'd watch you do something and then he'd be like all right cool yep sweet so what do you do and i'm like fuck i don't know if i want you doing that like i mean he's a stuntman but he just didn't care and he'd cartwheel and just like on his feet run out of it and then you'd get a message from him like no i'm not gonna ride that i got hit by a car yesterday and we're like what? He's like, no, 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 for work. Like it's all yeah. good, but I'm pretty sore. I got yeah. hit by a car. I'm just like, man, you guys are on another yeah, level. They man. are.
1: They really are. They're they're looking for trouble. But yeah, I'm just thinking about what other what other things I could tea about with Mad Max that was just so interesting. You know, the, the machinery they developed. For instance, that war rig on the top left hand shot there, the war rig, that there was three of those. Really? So unit one, which had the stars in it, unit two, which was the stunt guys, and unit three might have been set up for the next scene. And and for the war rig, you can see there, they had pods that hooked onto the front and either side. So depending on where the camera was, the pod had the driver. So Max wasn't driving. Mm. The guy, Lee Adamson, was the driver most of the time. He's the stunt guy down the front. Driving it, either really? hanging off the side of it in a in a seat bolted to the side in the air with all these controls in front of him that would plug in hydraul- hydraulically. Oh, to Oh,
0: so like whatever side the camera was yeah. going to shoot the car, he was driving the vehicle away from, from the that other.
1: off what? camera. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was off the front, off the side. Yeah, and then Max is looking like he's driving, but he's doing his gig, you know, behind the scene. Or Charlize might have been driving it, or or one of the the pretty girls might have been there or something. Yeah, it was. Pretty amazing. And then I've developed another really, really good friend from this. And in the first scene, there's a the head war boy that hangs off the side. He's called Ace in the movie. Mm. His name is John Isles. And John is an ex-SAS Navy diver. Sp- oh, I've met him. Yeah. John. yeah, yeah, yeah John's yeah, yeah, a, le- yeah. a legend. I had coffee with him this morning, actually. Yeah, yeah. He, I was going
0: to say, he's a local Goldie Yeah, dude, he's right? a
1: local Goldie now. He and, is um, a
0: super cool dude. He
1: is. And, and he can still pump out. Fifty chins. Oh, he's, he's a
0: rig man.
1: He is a cut rig. I tell you, <laughs> oh. and and he's been through. There he is, top yeah, left hand yeah. side. There's 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 John. He ended up playing like a, yeah. a character,
0: essentially, right? Uh,
1: yeah, and you can see the lumps on his neck. That's all prosthetics that are stuck. He would go through two hours of makeup. So he would get up sometimes at three o'clock in the morning get to make up, but sometimes, like all of us, we train before we got to make up, before we had breakfast, before we had the stunt briefing, before we went on set. So you don't get it easy when you're a stunt guy in these movies. It's hard work. And then, you know, John's perfect because he had the physique. Look at him. He's all skin and bones but all muscle basically.
0: What time – sorry, what age is he? He's in his Um, 50s, eh?
1: Yeah. yeah. Here he's he's late 40s. Yeah. Right here. Um, But, yeah, he's got – he is an awesome guy. Yeah, he's, he's a
0: great guy. Yeah,
1: eh? he really is. He's a top guy, and he's been through a lot in his life, you know, to to get to be a.
0: He was a diver, right? Yeah, a, yeah. a,
1: a chief diver in the navy, um, SAS. He went through that, you know, having to to sleep outdoors in reeds in swamps and prove his toughness and. You know, it's amazing the stories. I actually
0: want to get him on the podcast. Okay, it, yeah. I, I
1: can set that up for you, no problem.
0: I met him. I met him and I was just like,
1: Man, what a savage. Yeah, you you'll get some good stories from Tron. He's yeah. A, he's an awesome guy. But we re ride together, we mountain bike together now. Yeah, he, Guy right. Andrews, him and me and and others. Yeah, uh, I met him through Guy. Yeah, yeah. Top guy. But so yeah, he's another great friendship that I've evolved out of the movie and and Guy Andrews and you know the, what the work he went into, and then also to expand on John a little bit, because of his background with the SAS and everything, he became a security advisor for the stars, because Namibia is not the safest place. Yeah,
0: sketchy town. There's
1: a lot of dudes that want you and what you've got over there, and there's a really rich area, but there's also a non-rich area, and out of there they come out of there at night looking to what they can get, and. John has some really good stories that you'll get out of him, as far as those nights, things that he couldn't do, that he saw the security guys, local guys do, and how they had to treat people because that's the la- the law of the land over there. And anyway, good little yeah, good crazy. little future
0: stories about what he did. Did you guys see that wave break over there ever? No, man. Have you ever seen pictures of that thing? No. Can you look up that um, – it's just like Namibia left-hand wave. There's this wave I, – I think maybe you just weren't there, but Is Cody, it off
1: Cape Town or is it up in – No, in,
0: it's it's like where you Bay, guys – Near Swakopmund. Yeah, look at that. Skeleton Bay it's called.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So see if you can
0: – if there's like a video of this wave breaking. This is one of like – oh, there's one there down uh, – oh, yeah, there you go. So this was right where you guys were too. Cody said that he – They saw this one day. Like it doesn't break very often, but this was like right by where you guys were as well. It's such a, just a crazy place over there. It's very
1: windy there. Winds come off the Atlantic, as an onshore wind, and I'll tell you a story about doing a scene with this in a second once we watch this.
0: Yeah, fast forward this a little bit until, maybe to the very end It's probably where.
1: They called it the Skeleton Coast there because there's so many shipwrecks.
0: Yeah, so th- this wave was kind of like pretty much where Look at that. where you guys were filming and it doesn't break that often. But Cody said that there was one day where he's like, yeah, we just pulled up and we're just like watching it. It's a, I think it's one of the longest breaking barrels in the world. Wow. But if, yeah,
1: If you see inland from there, you see how it's flat, nothing. Yeah. That's where we were a lot, to shoot a lot of the scenes, here. Yeah.
0: And what, what was the accommodation like for you? Great. So you, did you get, stayed in like a town?
1: Yeah, we we're in a town. Yeah, oh, I don't pronounce it correctly, but Swakamon is how I pronounce it. Yeah, but it's it's um, it's good uh, luck
0: it, spelling that guy. <laughs>
1: it's um, it's a really really nice place with with some cafes and you know a nice scene. It's it's um, like Innisfail. Yeah, her right. <laughs> That's a, a random sm- – that is
0: a random reference and yeah, I totally get small it. small
1: town, but it's on the coast. Yeah. So the people from England and Holland and Dutch come down there and build a weekend up.
0: S- and it's Ob- beautiful Man. on the
1: coast. And the, they spend a lot of money. Some of the houses are be- – but that's cheap to build there because yeah. the labor's cheap.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's
1: not like paying the XE dollars we do in Australia to build everything, but it, there's some beautiful homes. It's a lovely place to be, but you just have to be careful there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, There's a lot of haves and have nots, yeah, you can but, understand it,
1: it. But this is one scene like behind there, you see wow. the sand dunes, right? Now, see the beautiful houses on the on the beach there. Well, behind there, there was between Walvis Bay and, and there's Swakamond, Swakamond, but yeah, I can't, I'm not South African, I can't pronounce it. But between Swakamond and Walvis Bay, where we we're doing most of our shooting, there's 35 kilometers. Six kilometers deep of sand dunes that you can see in that picture. Wow. And we did a lot of the the work in the sand dunes and um, we trained in the sand dunes, and that was really interesting on one of the scene areas. But there's south of this again, there's 100 foot high, 100 meter high sand dunes where Back in the day, the water came from the Atlantic and blown up, and over the millions of years, it's formed it's this just, yeah. huge amount of sand. We flew over it in a light plane once and checked it all out. It's just it blows you out the, the length and breadth of this sand dunes. Yeah,
0: that's crazy. And oh, that's it there.
1: That's some of it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. The, sand, the start of it there, and there's just so much sand down down the that lower part south of of uh, Walvis Bay. Yeah, that's incredible.
0: And uh Egypt too. You said you've been over there twice, eh?
1: Yeah, that's a blowout. Really? Egypt. Yeah, because I'm, I'm very non-religious, but it really makes you think about it makes
0: you wonder some shit. What
1: goes on back in the time and and who question mark developed
0: mm. things
1: in the world? Um, because what the Egyptians did is just amazing. Mm. Walking into that big pyramid, going to the the coffin room where it was. Uh, and other things that Vince took me to there, and seeing what they put onto the walls and how they dug those things, it just blows your way. Mm. It really does. It to me, if everyone's interested in a bit of history, you're kidding yourself when you don't try to go to Egypt one day. It's cheap. It's not expensive. It's not dangerous. They look after tourists, and it's just amazing to see what what happened back. Oh, thousands that's of years before Christ was born, thousands of years. That
0: image that you just had up, then guy, look, go above that one. Uh, yeah, that's incredible. Like, oh, that's not a real image, is it? No, is that's, it? no. that's
1: probably a painting. But yeah the, yeah, the the pyramids of Giza, which is close to Cairo, are that close to Cairo. Really? it's spread out. And now these pyramids are going to be entombed in a fence to cop the riffraff to keep them out of there, and the Egyptian government are building a brand-new museum that's huge. And in there, for instance, beside the main pyramid, there was a tomb that they found that had an old boat pulled apart that was lashed together with hemp rope and wood that expanded with water, but the hemp rope contracted with water. Yeah. Yeah. So this boat was put there so that the pharaoh at the time could sail away in his afterlife. It was all about the afterlife back then. And they built this boat, which they reproduced. It's in a an air-conditioned chamber that you can get to see. And it's just, it just blows me away when I think about everything I saw over there. It's, it's really special. And people, to see the size of those pyramids, the rocks that they put up there, how they did it, you know, two thousand, fifteen thousand years I went to the mud brick pyramid that was two and a half thousand years prior to the the birth of Jesus. How all that evolved and happened is just the story in itself.
0: Say so the Mayan pyramids are crazy too. Like, yeah. obviously not as crazy as that, but it's it's so gnarly to think that in two separate completely separate parts of the
1: globe, you're talking in Cambodia?
0: Ah, oh, no, no, Mayan pyramids in South America. In, yeah, in South America. Yep. Have you seen those?
1: No, I haven't. I've been
0: there. Well, what's that? I haven't been there. Have you? Seen, you've seen pictures of them? Pictures stuff. of them? Yeah. 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 But like, isn't it crazy to think that just the whole concept of a pyramid is there's no connection between those people? No, they couldn't talk. There's no communication. But they're building similar types of structures in similar ancient times. So you are right. Like when you think about. How how is that possible that they could do that? And nowadays you kind of can't even replicate it.
1: No, no, and like the Egyptian situation happened before the Greeks, yeah. before the Romans. Yeah, the Romans learned a lot from the Egyptians. Yeah, and you know they even even the French ripped off one of the obelisks that was taken out of uh, Luxor, and it's it's oh. there on the Tour de France. You see it every year. Yeah, yeah. They stole it and shipped it back to France. You know, it's still there today, and there's one still there. So what got you so into there's it? Adam Ryman wheeling at uh, the base of yeah, the pyramids. That's, that's pretty cool.
0: That's so cool. What got you into that stuff originally?
1: What got me into it?
0: Yeah, like the whole history and going to uh, – So your, mainly, first trip, your first trip to the pyramids, were you into the pyramids to go and see them or it, you Vince, went there?
1: Vince told me about it and said, oh, we should do it. And I took the whole family, you know, the kids, and we all went. And And that's – for my children, that was really good because they saw what people did and how – Poultry that they survived on poultry beginnings and living in sheds and yeah, digging holes and you know, like the basic way that people lived and and then they came to Niibia with me and saw that in Nibia oh and, wow, and it was really an eye opener and it you 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 value life because of what you see, you know, and I think everyone should do a life experience like that to understand that we don't get it easy, we're going to work for what we get and we're going to be thankful for yeah. what we get.
0: Have you ever done the Vietnam motorcycle tour? No. That's um, You've got to do that. I hear that it's amazing. You guys have to come. Like we've done that. I think Dad's done it three years in a row yeah. and then me and Maddie and Toby have all, we've got like our own little crew that does it as well. But the very similar experience. Like, I've been all over the world but there's a couple of things that happen in that Vietnam ride because you just, you're so off the beaten path. There's no like where we like one of the trips we went and um we were just coming around a turn in this little village and these places that they're like they just build houses on the side of the road highway they'll dig into the cliff and then they'll go on the other side and there'll be like a little tiny community of nine, ten houses. That's that's their world is those. Mm. You know, just those 10 houses. We just come around the corner, literally right as this dude just slit this cow's throat as we rounded this turn and just blood come out of this thing like a busted 500. And all of us were just like, fuck. (laughs) Like, we were just so, so taken back by it. And it's like, we've seen, you know, we've seen a lot of shit, but just... In that moment, I'll never forget that, yeah, you know, yeah. the, and the other cows are mooing like it was this horrific scene. I was oh. just like, cut me to my core. I was like, fuck, this is so heavy. Yeah. But that's daily life. Yep. And yep. they wouldn't, the way that it affected me, I was just like, oh, like it really like hit me in the stomach, you know. To them, they don't even blink a bad no. an eye because no. they've just been Every the, day. the circumstances at which uh, their normal has been based yep. off.
1: Just to survive. Just That's so it. different. Yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly.
0: But yeah, you, you'll have to come do that. I'm yeah. Pre- I'm pretty sure we can <laughs> get you on one of those rides. That, that
1: looks like a lot of fun.
0: Oh, man. It's just incredible. And the people, it's, I mean, all travel, I guess, is the same when you mm. go to a place and you really want to embrace the people and embrace the food. And, you know, it's so special to just see how other people have it. Eh? Yeah.
1: I love Vietnamese food, Thai food. I love it. Yeah. Have you been to
0: Vietnam or you've been to... Thr- Not
1: Vietnam. I've been to Thailand a couple of times and... uh And, um, yeah, more so Europe, America, 40-odd times. Yeah. Been around there a lot and and, uh, never been to South America. I've been into Canada. That was really nice. Uh, Most of the areas um, of Europe, Czechoslovakia, Germany, Austria, Italy, um, Greece. Yeah, I've been really lucky. My life's been
0: very special. I was thinking when you were talking about your first trip to America back in the 80s, how far away did America feel compared to doing a modern trip?
1: Oh, yes. You're stopping. You know, we flew. I remember the first trip we flew to Auckland, two hours on the ground, two and a half hours to get there. Got up, flew another 12 hours to Hawaii on the ground again for a few more hours. <sighs> a night, middle man. of the night, get back on, <laughs> another five hours to LA. You know, it's just, it's a real task. And we nowadays, you know, you can. You're lucky enough to go business class, you can sleep all the way across there.
0: How big did the world feel back then too? Like I feel like nowadays, if you said to me to tomorrow, hey man, you gotta go to LA, I'd be like, Oh, cool. Yeah. I just I don't even blink an eyelid at that anymore. But back then, did it feel like the world was just such a massive place?
1: Certainly. Just so big and huge, and I'll never get there, it's too far away, but you you can get there. If you have dreams enough, you can do a lot of things. Yeah.
0: Um, before before you get out of here today, oh, pretty much pretty much at three hours. Um, do you want? Oh, we'll just get we'll just get into it a little bit. One of the cool things that you have got going on at the moment is you're working um, with David at um, in Ashmore, and you're doing some like you're really investing back into your body to keep yourself. Um, doing the things that you want to do what's it been what's that process been like of going into like new treatments and stem cells and prp and i don't think a lot of people really uh kind of know that that's out there because so with dad we started looking at Getting his knees redone with stem cells when I still lived in America. So that's what that that's where how we sort of got into it. And then I'm not sure. Maybe you even put him on to Dave. I can't even I remember. Did. Yeah. So you did put him on to Dave. your mum. Yeah. Right. Okay. But that so that was the original plan. Is when I was still living in America, Dad was going to come. We had spoken to a company in Vegas about doing it. And then we were just going to do the stem cell thing. And David's been doing these injections with him, which I think is PRP that his dad's been getting. That's right. Um, yep. So that's that uh, platent-rich plasma Yep. Um, where basically they spin your blood at a super – maybe you should explain it. Yeah, probably. they You're spin the it expert. at
1: 3,500 RPM yep. and separate the red and the white blood cells. And the white blood cells are the uh, healers, and the red blood cells carry the oxygen around to the muscles or the body. So they inject um, – some other goodies into it to add to your your uh, white blood cells, and that's the PRP treatment. And then that's got a certain amount of healing capacity. Yeah. And for ligaments, tendons, things like that, joints to a degree, it's really good. But then it, when you get to the joints, um, the stem cell is another area that seems to step above that because I had PRP in the knees, had a little bit of an effect but not nearly as much as effect as my first lot of stem cells, which was about 15 months ago now. Yeah. And with the stem cells, they either take it out of different parts of your body where it's stored in the bone marrow. And the last time I got done by David Krasanik, who's at the Aust- Aust- Ashmore Osteopathic Group, he has other orthotists, uh, uh sorry, other um, – uh, osteos, osteos yeah. that work there that do different treatments but David yep. is a specialist in injectables and and mechanically fixing the body and the PRP worked but the stem cells worked better I also introduced Rod Faggata to it at the same oh, time okay. prior to last year's Dakar he had a big problem with one of his knees and he's running now where he couldn't run before and I was going down one step at a time before with my knees now I can walk down the steps freely Mm. So I've just gone in two weeks ago for another lot in my legs, and for the small dollars that it's worth here in Australia compared to what it's worth in America, I don't know whether you sussed out the cost in Vegas. Mum did, yeah, I can't remember that. But it's a lot more. Yeah. And then do they do it the right way? Now the right way is David's been trained in America, and when I was done and Rodney was done, we had the American doctor with David helping him to yeah. teach him the art but he he goes in through ultrasound yeah and he looks to see where the the necessar- the necessary area for the stem cells and he goes in with his needle he deadens the area with a a um A a deadener. We'll use that word for a second for a quick word that comes to my mind. Then he changes the needle, puts in the stem cells, squirts it in. He actually burrows into the meniscus and cartilage and bone area so that the stem cells can get in there and start to work. And without a doubt, it works. And that's your dad's next thing. Yeah, because
0: he's been doing the PRP. Yeah, because I think that David said that like that. So this is I want to tell people that my dad's life was fucked essentially from his knees mm. like he couldn't squat down he was on the couch constantly and just in pain yeah. and like this was like it was fucking gnarly like this is dad that took us to motocross anytime we wanted to ride he was our football coach he would re- referee six games of football like my dad is not fucking lazy yeah ever he's never been lazy in his life he was couch bound as a 55 year old man and it was honestly like heartbreaking to see and we were like we bought him a mountain bike and we're doing and he's like boys this isn't about me being fucking lazy and mm. like I cannot do it yeah. I can't do this shit yeah, it hurts too much and he was just like and I didn't like, we didn't realize how bad it was for him so anyway he went through got everything done There's no cartilage in his knees at all just bone on bone and then one day he said to, he's like I want you to listen to me walk up the stairs And then I, the sound that come out of his knees walking up the stairs and I was just like, oh, that's, and I'd lost hope that dad would actually be able to get back to doing anything. And, uh, and then man, he's been seeing David for a year probably, I think. And, um, and yeah, has just had some absolutely, yeah, just incredible results. And then like, so thank you to you for that, but you know, just like what he has been able to sort of get back to. Uh, and I'm sure like in your experience, like how much quality of life did that then give you as well?
1: Oh, much more quality. And I wouldn't finish a mountain bike or a road cycle without my knee blowing up and being sore and <laughs> having to, to to wait, you know, a long time before I could get back on again and have some more fun. And and it's really made a big difference to me. And the stem cells, the PRP, uh, they've also got a machine um, that's a microcurrent um. And they put like uh, TENS machines, they put um, patches on your leg and they run a special current through and they can change the current and it. it makes the body um, use its natural resources to heal itself. And I recently had a had a crash where I clipped a tree with a handlebar testing a, a mountain bike, uh, kindly loaned to me by Just Ride at Narang, and I finished up um three meters away, landing into a base of another tree and come to a dead stop and tore the, the quadralis lumbaris muscle.
0: Where's um, that in your car? It, it
1: comes from, it comes oh, from your, your lumbar, your pelvic girdle at the back up to your spine. Yeah. And uh, I had this treatment in the, and, and uh, injectables, and, and I got over it. I could barely move. Really? Barely move, and I got over it really quickly. So I, I honestly don't believe that much in physiotherapy these days there is good for assessment good for the basic things depends on how smart you are to start with that usually you know most of that stuff not not taking it away from them but an osteo that knows his game that's the guy to so see
0: yeah and i think too like as you get into a certain age like your body does not have the hormones that flow through the system that are able to help with healing in the in the same way and that is something that I think people, as you start to get older, like you just don't have the same level of these hormones that are sort of flowing through yep. your body. Like yep. your body does not heal. That's why we age. You get to a certain age and then you're like, oh, I'm getting old. Mm-hmm. You just don't have the same stuff flowing through your body. And it's like, you know, I, I think that there's a weird misconception around um, you know the stem cells and the prp and those kind of treatments and and stuff like that but you know for you now like to keep looking into the future to keep doing activities to keep mountain biking and to you know to keep doing the things you love it's mm. it's become like a big part of your program
1: oh uh, certainly has it's something that I'll keep doing too and because I'm really down the road for two artificial knees in the future and all of the knees are a whole lot better now you know they're they're 20 to 30 years of longevity, uh, and, and a lot of people who do it go, oh, I won't look back. It was fantastic because they're like your dad. They're in so much pain. Now, fortunately, I didn't have the same style of pain because some people are affected by the arthritic pain more than others. Mm. And I don't know whether it's the way I've looked after myself, the way I've eaten, or
0: – I'd say that I have a big part of it.
1: Or, more importantly, way back in the day when I used to see a naturopath during my racing days – there's a lady called Diane Edwards who used to see in Hurstville in Sydney who's now in Lithgow, and Diane was a really good naturopath. She put me on to little pullets that go in the lymphatic system. I put it behind the lip, it gets in the lymphatics of the, of the system, and she said, I just talked to her recently when I ordered some more, I've been taking this stuff. What is it? A Little pullets, which, and, and it's something in there, and I can't – Pull it apart to tear, but they just they drain and melt into the lymphatics, and it it makes your lymphatics work more yeah. effectively. Wish I could explain this more technically, but no, I can't no, at the moment. Fine. And talking to her recently, when I reordered some of it, she said it's become the gold measure. This particular brand and Bauer Medical B A U R from South Australia yeah. develop and make this up for her, her, and and they and I've been sucking on that stuff every day of my life since the the, uh, the late 80s. Really? So I don't know whether that's made a difference. And I've hung in there with it. She said that's the thing, so I believed her, and I've had faith in what she's been giving me. I've been taking glucosamine and chondroitin along the way um, through my medical uh, meetings over in America, going to the medical conventions with the knee braces. I learned about and, um, glucosamine over there, and that's a brand. Glucosamine, uh, so Cosamine is the brand, has chondroitin and glucosamine. Glucosamine is the lubricant in the joint, and chondroitin is the, the, the helps to build, rebuild the cartilage. So I did that for a lot of years, but I think that can only help so much. Yeah. So I've, I've done a lot of things over time, and, and, you know, I've got one leg that points outside 10 degrees and one leg that points inside at eight degrees, and, and typically, after twelve degrees of variation of the lower leg, they they want to put an orthosis in artificial yeah. knee. But I'm I'm just trying to push that off
0: as long as you can. As long as
1: I can, before I have to go for the the legs. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and so you've just had you've made a commitment for a very long time to like keep your body lasting as long as possible, right?
1: Yeah, because I enjoy the fun stuff of riding and mountain biking and I still get a buzz by competing with the younger guys, even maybe on Strava yeah. that you look at. That's like know. the
0: first thing you said to Streeter was, oh, see you on Strava. Yeah.
1: yeah it's just, the old it's racing just, never dies. Does well, it, it doesn't. It. And, you know, you, you get to a point in your life that you can't do what you did and you're not car racing and, well, now it's Strava times, you know, so I know it sounds weird, but you always got to tick the box in your life yeah. and you like to do things that you think you can do okay and you it makes me smile when I think, oh yeah, there's some young guy that they're trying to beat me and I'm still faster than him. So it's fun.
0: Um, We'll end with uh, what have been the philosophies that have guided you? Because I know you've got a couple of your own little philosophies that you sort of like to live by. We kind of covered them, but.
1: Yeah. Well, the one that I learned at that, that gymnasium in America, there's no easy way is something that really stuck by me. And then treating people nicely is another one that, you know, like I think it's important to treat people nicely in this world. And even though some people might say, you know, he didn't treat me me nicely on the track or something, maybe because I carved them up a bit too much, but that's a different persona you put on when you get on to race and you're paid to be a professional and you want to win and you've got this driving force behind you to win races. Well, you tend to do things maybe you wouldn't do normally. Um, so I'm sure there's people out there saying that he was an aggressive guy and he tried to take me out and, and 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 so that was one thing about looking after people and and being very responsible for my family and giving them the best possible upbringing, which I'm very, very happy with how my two kids have turned out. You know, Alexandra's gone off to be a nurse and trying to do a master's in nursing, working with RaceSafe, the medical unit at the race around Australia. She loves that, helping people like me. She loves to help people in another way. And my son is getting into the knee brace business and he loves to fit the brace right like I did. He can see what I get out of it and make sure the customer goes away with a smile on his face and give the best quality um, service that he can give them, you know. So I'm really happy that that all those things have happened in my life and I've had a great life and yeah, no complaints.
0: Mate, well, we've just done well over three hours, but I really appreciate your time. Um, yeah, like I said, you're you're an absolute legend of just an Australian sport, and to leave a legacy the way that you have on not just racing, not just fitness, not just the you know the coaching. That there's so much stuff that that you've done and left it better than when you got to it. Mm-hmm. And I just think everybody, honestly, almost everybody that rides a motorcycle in Australia has you to thank for for some part that you've played in the industry. And I know that, like I said, for Dad to us, you were always the guy. The guy like Stephen Gaul was like this. Stephen Gaul was like that, you know. <laughs> and so it it can't be overstated the effect that that you've had. And and thanks yeah. so much for coming in. Yeah, it's no, thank just, you. It's I really
1: appreciate a- it. And I'm I'm flattered to be asked to be here. I honestly am. And you know, I always treat myself as not doing much that's anything special in my life. But obviously, it's pretty special to a lot of people. So no, very very thankful of that.
0: I appreciate it. And thank you to actual daddy, Guy Streeter, for uh providing us with the uh the switching and the uh the Googling, the you googlize and uh we will be uh back very soon for more gypsy tales podcasts. Thanks everyone.